Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, Simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn, and joining us by phone today is my good friend, my best friend, Ryan Nicodemus. Yes. And together that makes us the minimalists. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> We're here with Malabama. Hi, Hi Mal. TK Coleman is in the studio. Yo, yo, yo. We got the rest of our team. Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Danny Unknown, Adriel is here. And uh, we also have Emma and Jess. And you can't can't see them right now, Ryan, but Emma and Jess are here. On the couch. <laughs> in spirit. Yeah, in spirit. And podcast Sean, That's of course, great. is roaming the halls, haunting us. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. uh, we got so much to talk about today, oh, Ryan. Man. We uh we're recording this out of order. So later in the episode, we'll be joined by musician and YouTuber. His name is Ruslan. He made a a video criticizing the minimalists. And so we wanted to find a way to to disagree with him. And I think, TK, we disagreed beautifully, although we certainly did disagree yeah. later in the episode. So you'll be able to check that out. we got so much more to tackle today as well. You'll notice I'm wearing a shirt with a hole in it. Ryan, <laughs> if you can't see it because you're on the phone, but just imagine. My, I saw it uh, on Instagram. It's a strategically placed hole in his shirt. Very intentional. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, oh, I yeah, I, uh, I worked. Uh, I feel like uh, Noah Gunderson. Remember, we saw them in concert, Ryan, and he. Everyone yeah. on stage had like six appropriately placed holes in their shirts. It looked so. Exactly. It looked uh, grunge simultaneously, grunge and really well orchestrated, put together. Anyway, man, I've been donating all my shirts with holes in it. Now I'm just imagine how much money I've thrown away. How much could those sell for? Well, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna do an ambassador trash segment later about my shirt. So we'll we'll get to that. I'll let TK and Malabama criticize me, judge me, <laughs> yeah. if you will. We're doing this whole episode about judgment today and many other similar questions about judgment, judgment as emotional clutter. And we have a bunch of listener questions. So let's start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a private podcast subscriber so that we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Danielle in Australia. I'm currently a nanny to three girls ages six to eight years old. And I'm wanting to implement an idea I learned from your podcast, that they can have control and can choose how they react to situations and that they are the only ones who can make themselves feel anything, whether it's happiness, offense, anger, sadness, jealousy, etc. I'd love to hear the experiences of those who are successfully implementing this and see what it would look and sound like. So, Danielle, I just yell at my daughter and say, only you can make yourself happy. Only you can make yourself upset. 
That's how, brilliant. How question. dare you think I'm upsetting you right now? <laughs> you make me so mad when you think that, girl. <laughs> uh, Ryan, you know, what's fascinating is you and I have been going down this road for a while. And it's it's something that even as 40-year-olds, it's something really hard to grasp because I have built up this pattern of blaming other people for my own emotions, my own emotional clutter. And here's what I'll say first off. Here, here's a, a truth that I want to unpack. Emotions are great airplane passengers, but horrible pilots. And here's what I mean by that. So we, we often think because what we're saying here is like, well, anger, only you can make yourself angry. You can make yourself upset. And therefore, people think what I'm saying is, well, it's bad to be angry. You should never want to be angry. You should never be angry, TK. Mm. Ryan, you should never be upset. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying mm. is this airplane is full of emotions, right? But I don't want to let them in the cockpit. I don't want my anger to steer me toward rage. I don't want mm. my disappointment to steer me toward judgment of someone else. Mm. Right on. You yeah. Can. Mr. Ryan, come on, man. oh i was just agreeing with josh i mean if if i was to say i would just say yeah it's like so that's wonderful i love it i think that's a great sentiment for people to you know look at when they're thinking about emotions uh especially the negative ones right because those are the ones that we act out most with but how do you help a six seven or eight year old (laughs) comprehend uh that that hey those emotions are really nice passengers in your airplane (laughs) <laughs> but they, they, don't allow them to, to to fly your life. But you, you know, it's interesting though, Josh, because I, I you don't yell at Ella. Obviously, that was a joke earlier. But this is the philosophy, you know, that you live by. So you're setting this amazing, you know, uh, uh, example for Ella, and she sees how you react to different emotions. And I think that's really where it starts, especially, man, like with kids, like when they're younger. So as infants. Uh, they can't comprehend anything. So they're just like, you know, little emotional reaction machines. And so it's really up to us as as the parent. By the way, I have no kids, so it's so easy for me to give advice to parents. But it's our job, you know, as as the parent to uh to to, to set that example for how we react to our children's out of control emotions. And then eventually it gets to a point where, yeah, I think probably seven, six, seven, eight year old is an appropriate time to start helping. Uh, these kids unpack their emotions and help and talk them through it. Hey, why do you feel that way? Mm. What what does it make you feel? What does that feeling make you want to do? Uh, doing that is that an appropriate reaction? Like, what if I reacted that way? And like, really helping them unpack that. But going back to what I was saying in the, in the beginning, if the parent or the nanny in this case hasn't set that example in the first six or seven, eight years. They're going to have to start with themselves first, and that is when they can uh, you know start to maybe have that conversation with those kids. We also often set the opposite example. And that's why, Ryan, when I talk to you about, as 40-year-olds, we have all this baggage. We've we've carried on to that plane to ex- extend my metaphor and now mix metaphors. We, <laughs> we're on that plane with all these emotions. And mm-hmm. the reason that I often say that person made me mad is I want to assume the role of the victim. And, and it's a, not to say that there isn't a such thing as being victimized. I certainly have been victimized. But then how I respond to that, well, quite often it has to do with my cultural programming. And I've been programmed to blame, 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 because in order for me to write, to be right, someone else has to be 
wrong. They have to be incorrect. But for a kid, what we're often doing is we're showing them how to blame other people. And when we show other people how to blame, we show kids how to blame other people, then they are going to pick up that baggage and carry it onto the uh, the airplane with you. That's right. Yeah. If the destination is self-discovery, then our emotions can be our greatest guide because then you can afford to walk with them. You can afford to sit next to them, talk with them, spend some time with them. But the effort to try to talk someone out of an emotion just reinforces the idea that what you feel is the problem. But the feeling is never the problem. It's not the fact that you're angry. It's your anger plus the idea that the best way to resolve this anger is to punch you in the face. (laughs) Your jealousy is not the problem. It's the jealousy plus the best way to deal with this jealousy is to steal your stuff or to outcompete you. And so what we do is what Ryan said, we talk our children through their feelings. We treat their feelings as if it's worth giving our attention to in a healthy way by saying, hey man, why are you so angry right now? What are you angry about? Mm-hmm. We don't condemn them. We don't make them feel like our goal is to get you to stop feeling as angry as soon as possible, right? It's like, what are you angry about? What is it about that that makes you angry? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What does that make you want to do? And, and the process of calming, of calming down, usually it's an automatic response from just having the opportunity to be heard, right? And, and that's, that's where we get the opportunity to help our children learn how to channel that emotional energy in a constructive direction. Because as, as, it's, as it's often been said, emotion is just energy in motion. And it's the way in which we direct it that determines the result. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was, uh, <laughs> when, we, when we were in Australia, Josh, we get on a Qantas flight and um, I'll never fly them again. Uh, I'm sure other people have had lovely experiences with them, but I have not. But a long story short, um, I was talking to the gate agent and I had a complaint and I was being real nice and courteous. And I said, man, I said, it must be tough having to um, deal with all these customer complaints. And she said to me, she goes, well, you know, each customer gets to decide how they react. And I thought, well, she's not wrong there. Like, that's a pretty... Pretty, uh, pretty good observation. So, I mean, really, yeah. I mean, if I had, a, you know, a pithy answer to give to this, I would, you know, I'd say something along the lines of, uh, you know, we can't control our emotions; we can control only how we react to them. Yeah. If I were to pin that at all, I, I would simply talk about the judgments that we make based on those emotions. We're going to be talking mm-hmm. to the YouTuber and musician Ruslan later, and he, well, he made a video about the minimalists and our judgments of other people. And at the time, what did I want to do? I wanted to judge him back. And what I realized here is, oh, no, this isn't an opportunity for me to judge him. It's an opportunity for me to better understand him. So I invited him to come on the podcast. And we had a loving, disagreeing, strongly disagreeing conversation. But we did so in a way that I felt was productive. And if if we map that onto our children, okay, the questions TK is asking about, well, tell me about that anger. Tell me about that sadness. Tell me about why you're upset. And as soon as they start steering it toward blame, okay, why mm-hmm. is that person responsible? Mm-hmm. And helping them understand, not through telling, not through instructing, not through being didactic, but through questioning, exploring together. All of a sudden, it opens up the world. That's what makes room for love because we can look at judgment and we can say, oh, yeah, 
you're acting angrily, so you're lashing out, you're blaming someone else, you're judging them for their behavior, and you're saying that's who that person is. That person always makes me mad. That person always <laughs> makes me upset. That person always makes me cry. Okay, these things might be true, technically, but ultimately how we're responding to that person is, well, how we're responding to them allows us, opens up the, the world of, of possibilities to stop being upset, to move away from that upset into that place of understanding. Imagine, yes, and, the, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Ryan. Oh, yeah, no, I was just going to say, and speaking of judgment, there was a poll on Twitter where our audience judged our hair, and I want to talk about the results. Oh, he would. He would. <laughs> there, were, there, were, there were some very clear judgments on that poll. I just, I just want to say. Ryan, there's a whole stack of ballots that are that are missing in Arizona. You know what I was going to do today? Because you're, because you're not in... <laughs> because you're not in the studio. I We used to have that cardboard cut out of us. We That tour that got canceled back in 2020 for some reason. Yeah. Why did we cancel tours in 2020? Uh, I don't know. Anyway... Um, we had a cardboard cutout of us. We were sending to each city and people were going to take photos and like at prominent landmarks. And yeah. uh, we, unfortunately, we decluttered that. We didn't amass it. We trashed it. And <laughs> I was going to have a cardboard cutout of you here in the studio because <laughs> yeah, the, the people on the Patreon live stream have been really brutal. They're like, you guys can't even get Ryan to phone it in. <laughs> <laughs> and now literally he's phoning it in. <laughs> Uh, exactly. TK, you, you want to have the last word on this question? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I was just going to say, uh, imagine that it were somehow possible for you to uh, reach adulthood without anyone having taught you what your sensation of hunger meant. And you felt hungry. What would you do? First, you'd experience that pain, discomfort, tension, whatever you call it, that we use the label hunger to describe. And because you wouldn't know what hunger was for, you might just react in a bunch of unhealthy ways. You might bang your head against a wall. You might start yelling at people, screaming at them. You might start running around hoping that the feeling goes away. You might try to ignore it. You might grab the first thing that you can find and try to eat it, even if it's poison ivy. Mm. If you don't know what a thing is for, then abuse will be inevitable, right? Mm. But the problem isn't hunger. Your sensation of hunger is a good thing that's there to help you survive and thrive, but you need to be taught what it's there for. It's the same with our feelings, whether it's anger, sadness, all of those emotions have something to teach us. And just like hunger, if no one shows us what it's for, then we're bound to react and respond to that in a way that's self-destructive. But once you show someone, hey, look, that sensation you feel, that's part of what it means to be alive. Here's the healthy response to have when you feel it, because there are things you can do in response to that sensation that might harm you. But here are the options that you have for what's healthy, what's constructive. That's beautiful. Right, Ryan? Man, I'm so glad TK's with us. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise. Ryan's going to stick around for a few more questions on the private podcast. Danielle, thank you for your question. I'm going to send you a copy of our first film. It's called Minimalism, a documentary about the important things. You can find it at minimalismfilm.com. We recently removed it from Netflix, and it's available with six 
hours, six hours. And Danielle, we'll send you the six hours of bonus interviews as well. Beautiful film, 79 minutes, but we had all these other interviews and not all of them could make the film. So you can find it over at minimalismfilm.com. You can also check it out on iTunes or Amazon where you can rent it or purchase it as well. But Danielle, we'll send you a copy of that. Really, it's um, it's a story that, well, you know, it's a, there's several different stories that interweave this whole thing. And here's one thing I realized, Ryan, while I've got you on the phone, is quite often we get angry at someone. It's usually through a screen. It makes it really easy to get angry if there's a screen mm-hmm. between us, meaning mm-hmm. you're a thousand miles away, a hundred miles away, or on the other side of town. You're texting me and you're not responding the way I want you to respond. But when we are right here, and that's why I had Ruslan on later in the episode, you realize when you hug someone... It breaks down all the barriers. And you see so many hugs in that first film because what we were doing, we were out on the road and we still do this now. I met someone at a coffee shop yesterday. He said, oh my God, you're, you're uh, that one guy from The Minimalists. And I said, give me a hug, man. He goes, oh, that would be so nice. <laughs> and we're starved for that. And so we can disagree, but we can also hug it out before and after. You'll, you'll see a, lot of, a whole lot of that in... Uh, our first documentary, mm. Minimalism, minimalismfilm.com. Man, I almost want to say the six hours of, of extended footage is better than the movie itself. <laughs> it allows you to... There's, do- so much, there's so much good... There's so many good interviews in that. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Matt did a, just a brilliant job weaving it all yeah. together. But if you want to oh, dive yeah. deeper, you can certainly find it over at minimalismfilm.com. Our next question is from Sarah in Carlsbad, New Mexico. I am a speech-language pathology assistant. I've been doing speech therapy for seven years. I'm from Colorado and worked in Colorado and Arizona, then moved to moved with my wonderful boyfriend of now three and a half years to Texas and now New Mexico. In order to work in New Mexico as a speech assistant, I have to be enrolled in nine graduate course hours in the field of speech path or a similar field working to obtain a master's degree in speech pathology. Being a certified speech pathologist would definitely increase my pay a lot, but it would take away the fun of the job and create debt. I've had eight supervisors, all SLPs, and the stresses they carry day-to-day is just not for me. They have desk jobs, and I get to implement therapy with students and have minimal desk time, which I value. I also believe and agree that there is no such thing as good debt, so grad school is not for me. Our three-year plan is to move back to Colorado, where I'll get a job in a school district and continue as a speech assistant. So my question is this. If I work a different job for three years here in New Mexico, will future school districts in Colorado shun me for taking that three-year break? Will it look bad on my resume? Should I just move back to Colorado now because it is my home state and happiest of places and just jumpstart our three-year plan and try the long-distance relationship. Sarah, I'm going to let TK talk on this because he works with a lot of students and a lot of people in your situation. I will make a few observations here. You're asking about shoulds as though there is one correct path, right? And then also you're being told some limiting stories that are preventing you from perhaps going the path you want to go down. And, and one, of those, one of those stories is that, well, you said it yourself. I can't go to school because it would require debt. So first thing I'm going to say, Sarah, is I'm going to send you a copy of our book, Love People Use Things. One of the chapters in there is about our relationship with money. And one of the sections in there shows you exactly how to go to school 
and graduate debt-free. And so is it possible? Of course it is, because Anthony O'Neill, who I interviewed for the book, he walks you through exactly the plan to get a debt-free degree. Now, it might not be as sexy as taking on a bunch of debt and and just really living it up on those uh, on the borrowed money, but you're really borrowing from your future. And so the only pithy thing I'll say to you and then pass it over to TK is debt doesn't drain only your bank account. It drains your freedom. Mm. Am I supposed to give a pithy you response can. You first? You don't have to. You give whatever you want. Well, my, I'll give a pithy first about that. Um, the pithy is a... Uh, you don't have to do something full time in order to give it quality time. It's possible to do something other than that thing that you really want to do in the future. It's possible to begin doing that now if you give yourself permission to flirt with it, to befriend it without being married to it. So one of the questions that you asked is, hey, will, will people shun me if I'm away from this for three years and I come back? Well, I found that it's usually best to stay away from the game of trying to predict what other people will or will not shun because for starters, you can't control that and no one can give you a definite answer to that. It's just a good reason to worry, right? And to psych yourself out. You don't know what people are gonna shun. There probably will be people who will say, who does she think she is to step away from this for three years and think she can come back? And there will be people who will say, I'm glad to see you come back. And you can't predict who will be who. I would focus on what are the results that matter most to me and what are the choices I can make to position myself to create those results. If you're going to work in another field for the next three years, I would say stay involved in the thing you know you want to do on the margins. These are not the only examples of what you could do, but a couple would be you could monthly interview people that are speech pathologists or that work in or around that field and release an interview in writing or recording once every month. It doesn't have to be popular. It doesn't have to get a lot of views, but it will create a body of work, a track record that will show over the course of the next three years that you stayed in the conversation, that you stayed involved in that field and that you didn't take a complete break from it. Another thing that you could do is once every two weeks or once every month, you can take the knowledge that you already have from that field and you can write a blog post about it. You can write something that gives tips to people that are working in it. You can write reflections from your own experience so that, again, at the end of that three years, you will be able to show when you're coming back into that field that this is something that you are still interacting with and engaging at a pretty high level. And that's something that will command respect. That's something that will make people go, wow, that's pretty impressive that you were continuing to do this even though you weren't doing it full time. It'll at least signal that this is something that was a priority for you. And even if at the end of the three years, you don't want to go back into that field, you'll be proud of yourself for having documented so much of your knowledge and your expertise around the field. So that would be something that I recommend. Man, those are two awesome paths. So yeah, TK, I didn't even think about that, but that's a great idea. Like how can you stay involved? I, I Something that came to mind too was... Uh, is it possible to do like private tutoring, like just, you know, a little small private tutoring business? Is that, or does that require her to, you know, be in the class? I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, I love that finding a way to stay in it. And then just to kind of accent what Josh was saying, um, yeah, you could probably, I, I would challenge you to do this for free, Sarah, honestly. Um, there are plenty of ways to get a graduate degree for free. It's not easy. I know that's really simple advice. Uh, 
And I know I'm making it sound easy, but I want to be very clear. It's probably not very easy to do that, but there, there is a way. I, I guarantee it if you look into it. But uh, I guess like for me, when I heard her ask this question, I'm like, I don't know. Like I'm not, <laughs> I don't hire speech therapists. I have no idea, you know, what that gap is going to look like. So I'm, I'm trying to go at it from my perspective. If, and if it was me, because I have no clue whether or not they would care about that gap, I would find some really reputable, uh, you know, schools or whatever it is um, that you want to work for in Colorado and reach out to them early, reach out to them now and say, Hey, I'm really interested in working at your facility. And if possible, I'd like to ask you a few questions. Uh, we're planning on moving back in two or three years. And I'd love to just, you know, maybe have a quick call with you or whatever. Um, but I guarantee there will be people amicable to talk this out with her and to give her some options. So yeah, I think there's like three really good choices here. But Sarah, yeah, it's going to be up to you to choose which one is going to be the best approach for you. Ryan, can you stick around for a question from the live stream? One more question. You got it, man. I'm so happy to be with you guys. You know, it's so funny, man. Like I'm in Montana. I'm having an amazing time. And I'm seeing everyone that I've missed for like the last six months. And it's awesome. But now I just miss you guys. So I don't, I don't know how I'm going to reconcile this, but I'm always missing somebody. <laughs> well, <laughs> I miss you too, thing. man. Maybe the longing is a good thing. Uh, it's beautiful. We were talking about this. Uh, Bex and I were recording a podcast this weekend, uh, How to Love. And what we were talking about is when we spend too much time together, it doesn't make the room for missing the other person. And... Mm-hmm. Obviously, that rhythm is a bit different. We had Matt Nathanson on the podcast while you were on vacation. It was one; it's one of the best conversations we've had with a guest. And we went through his album, but we were talking about how you know so the tempo of some music, like some music's death metal, and it's two hundred beats per minute, and it's just and but even there, there's some space between the notes, or there's something that is a slow ballad and it's 55 beats per minute, and there's a lot more space between the notes. And it's not that you would say, well, obviously the ballads are better than the death metal, or you know what, the death metal's faster, so it must be better. It's there are more notes, so it must be better. No, it's like, well, what is appropriate? Because if you had you start playing death metal at a Mozart concert, it's going to feel inappropriate. It's going to feel out of place. And what I've realized, Ryan, is that the the space that you're creating there, that longing, is actually what you want. It's what Peter Rollins talks about when he says, you don't desire the thing that you want, you desire the desire. And often when you get the thing, and then mm-hmm. you stop desiring it because you've now acquired it. You bought the BMW, and now I don't have the desire for the BMW or for you, Ryan, to be a Tesla, right? As soon as you get that <laughs> Tesla, you're going to be freaking miserable, man, because now you don't have, you've lost the desire for the Tesla. Oh, my God. I saw someone trapped in a garage the other day in their Tesla because it wouldn't connect to Wi-Fi. <laughs> oh, <What>? man. <laughs> oh, man. It's a whole episode on that. Oh, man. <laughs> it's like my book ran out of batteries the other day. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Malabama, oh, we got a question from the live stream. We do. Here's a question from Yaman. What do you think about the stereotype that entertainers are at the service of the people? Does this view of the entertainment industry play a role in the content you produce? What a thoughtful question, Yaman. He's one of our favorite supporters, listeners. Frequent flyer, if you will. He'll be at our Sunday Symposium. He's coming out to LA. Really? Just to to come to the Sunday Symposium. I told told him to uh, make sure he emails Malabama beforehand. We'll get him a, a seat in the front row. Anyway, 
Uh, he, you met, uh, you met him in Atlanta. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And so, what's happening? What a thoughtful question here, yeah. because I'm of two minds of this, and I don't think either is right or wrong. We have a whole discussion about right and wrong later. And what I will say is that it depends on what you want to accomplish, right? Some people mm-hmm. are in the service industry where they create something because they found a niche and they want to provide for that audience. You know, someone opens a Chuck E. Cheese because kids need a place to play and they found a way to monetize that, right? And in that in that sense, you can do it artistically, but you're doing it with that audience in mind. I find that with me, and here's something what I teach my writing students in How to Write Better, that my audience in my head looks rather suspiciously like me. Now, I don't mean <laughs> that they're a six foot two white guy. I don't mean like demographically like me. I mean that they look like me in the sense that they they often think like me. They have the same quandaries as me, the same struggles as me, the same type of suffering with me. And so it doesn't mean that I've tailored anything to this audience. The audience that we have resonated with have gone through similar problems, Ryan. I think you would agree with this, that sure. the audience that, that we have now They've seen what Ryan did, and he was struggling in the corporate world to find meaning and purpose, and he tried to find that through drugs and alcohol and womanizing and all these things that we wrote about in Love People Use Things, and that didn't fulfill him. And these people are realizing they've tried a lot of things to fulfill them. Consumerism, drugs, alcohol, pacification, more, 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 and that didn't fulfill them. And they found Ryan did the same thing. They, fo- they followed his path and they realized, oh, that path didn't work. And then they saw that Ryan figured out a recipe, maybe not a path, but a recipe hmm. that did work for him. And as opposed to them trying to um, uh, apply the same exact recipe, they look at it and say, oh, wow, yeah. You know what? I like this about your recipe. I like that. But my life's a little bit different, so I'm going to have to try these different things here. Yeah. And in doing that, we're not creating for a specific audience, the audience is following the creation that resonates with them. There's an old you know, Buddhist parable about the, the, the teacher shows up when the student is ready. And I think mm. of our work that way. I mean, people come up to us at our events, Ryan, and they're often like, oh, I found you just at the right time. Yeah. As opposed to what? The wrong time? Yeah. Right. That's so good. <laughs> one, one of my favorite quotes is, the best way to be interesting is to be interested. The best way to be exciting is to be excited. The best way to be fascinating is to be fascinated. The most interesting, exciting, fascinating artists, creators, entertainers are people who tell the stories, compose the songs, make the jokes that they like. The moment that you cease to do that, in order to play the game of trying to predict what you think the audience will like in order to serve them, you are now devoid of a soul. You're devoid of conviction. And that's the thing that an audience loves the most. I heard Howard Thurman say, and I've often quoted this, ask not yourself what the world needs, but rather what makes you come alive, for that is what the world needs, people who come alive. We resonate with those who have a sense of aliveness and a sense of authenticity. And that is what I think is the distinction between a servant and a slave. A slave has no autonomy. They serve you but they have no rights, they have no respect, they have no freedom. You tell them what to do and they do it. Why? 
because they're afraid of the consequences if you don't approve. A servant, on the other hand, says, I have my autonomy. I come and go as I please. If I get bored with this, I'm done and I'm not obligated to any of you to persist in doing something that makes me feel dead inside in the name of being generous. However, I show up because I love it first, because it makes me come alive first. And I hold you to no moral obligation to sit here and be entertained by it. But if you enjoy it too, then let's dance together. It's kind of like the best friends don't come about from you saying you want to do a 10K and I say, well, I hate 10Ks, but I'll drag my body through the motions in order to be a good friend. It's when I go to the 10K for me, you go to the 10K for you, and we see each other there and we say, oh, wow, this is cool. You like this too? How about we do it together? Because I'm doing it for me, you're doing it for you. But now we can enjoy it even more when we allow our interests to intersect in that way. That's where the magic happens. That's where the dance begins. Damn it, this is what happens when I follow TK. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's the shame, man. I don't want to say anything. Like, I just want to like, great answer, TK. All right, great talking to you guys. Hey, you know what I'm going to start doing? I'm, I'm going to start putting on a blonde wig and wearing a Not Ryan t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great. So, so Ryan, oh, you... you no. uh, what, I, what I'd like to maybe play off of here is maybe there's another side of this. Maybe mm-hmm. there's even a, a detente because... What I've realized, though, I'll lean into the things that resonate with our audience. So I'll give you an example, Ryan. Yep. You and I have gone on 10 tours over the course of 12 years. And I remember the first tour we did, we, called it, we just called it the meetup tour, where literally we'd go to coffee shops and bookstores and one or two yoga studios, any space that would have us, basically. And we would simply meet with a group of people. That's how we met Professor Sean, who's here right now. We... we we met him in Pittsburgh, and he was one of maybe eight people who were there, and that's including me and Ryan. And at some yeah. of our bigger events, we'd have 20, 30 people there. Uh, San Francisco, Leo Babauta was there, so we had 70 people there, right? And so we had small groups of people, generally a dozen or two dozen people, and that space enabled us to tell the stories that were we were still sort of fleshing out, and we figured out what resonated. I would yeah. tell some grandiose metaphor about channel surfing and how our lives have turned into just channel, and it was just crickets. It didn't yeah. resonate with anyone. Right. And the irony is, I've been trying to tell that same. I've written the story. <laughs> I've tried to put it in two I really different like books. That metaphor, man. Well, thank you. But our editor of Love People Use Things didn't like it and cut it from the book. <laughs> and I'm like, even twelve years later, I can't tell this dance. And here's the thing. It doesn't resonate. And that's okay. But then we found out, like I started mentioning Ryan's packing party as a afterthought. And everyone just just latched onto it. Tell me more about that. Mm. And so we're not creating something specifically to appease them. But when you're there in a room with someone Mm -hmm. or even online, you can start to figure out what resonates. Right, Ryan? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know what's interesting, man, is like every single live event we've ever done from the meetup tour to, uh, you know, the last tour that we did. So, you know, we've, we've had two people showed up, we've had 2000 people show up, or even more in some cases. And, you know, every time I'm nervous, because I really want to connect with everyone in the audience, but I'm worried about, you know, um, connecting with every single type of person and personality, and so forth and so on. But, you know, every single time, once I start talking, and uh, looking at the crowd's reactions and answering questions, I realize that it's they're just a bunch of us, man. And you yes. know, it helps appreciate that 
you know, people aren't showing up to see the Josh and Ryan show. We're great. We're awesome. <laughs> and the Josh, Brian and TK show and uh, Amanda Montel show is going to be awesome in, in LA on August 28th. And I'm really looking forward to it, but they're not showing up to see us. Like they're really showing up to see themselves. And that um, I really try to hold on to. The, the one thing that really stands up about Yaman's question uh, for me is the, um, the stereotype. And here's the thing about stereotypes. There are stereotypes for a reason. Like you look at a McDonald's, you can say, oh, that's a stereotypical McDonald's. Like there are stereotypes in life. But I will say that with every you know, stereotype, there's probably another uh, outlier. And I think that is where... Um, probably you and I and TK sit and, and, and anyone else on the team is like, we are, uh, doing things for ourselves, not in a selfish way, but so we can, you know, uh, really give ourselves to others. But, you know, when we do that, I don't think it's, I mean, I might be a stereotypical Ryan Nicodemus, you know, I would agree with that, but you know, beyond that, um, yeah, I don't think we fall into those entertaining stereotypes where we're trying to figure out like, Oh, how can we, how can we get 4,000 people to show up? How can we get a million likes? Oh, they really like those home tours. You know what? Let's just cancel everything and let's just start doing home tours, you know? Yeah. So, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it would be very easy to fall into that trap. Um, if you were after going after the, the wrong things. Yeah. I think we often go after the clicks thinking that there's going to be meaning in that. There's nothing wrong with having something that goes quote unquote viral, right? But when it becomes our aim, we often lose sight of what we find to be meaningful, what we find to be important. Because what someone else finds important or meaningful doesn't mean that I will necessarily. And so if I start trying to tailor everything I do to what this person will like, and if it gets in the way of what I like, I'm going to make myself miserable trying to sort of appease everyone else, looking for everyone else's acceptance. So I think a middle ground here is you start with what makes you come alive because there's no point in doing anything that makes you feel dead inside for the sake of just showing up to say you've done it. But then out of all the different things that make you come alive, you pay attention to the feedback that you give from people, that you get from people. So if you love to tell stories and people say, I really like it when you tell those kinds of stories, then maybe you can tell a few more of those stories, right? And if they hate it when you tell the other kind of story, you can hold those back. You're still doing what makes you come alive, telling stories, but now it's a relationship where you're building off each other. Ryan will be back in the studio on the next episode that comes out. That'll be uh, 3.57. Ryan, thanks for calling in, brother. I love you. Love you, man. Hey, love you guys. It's so great being with y'all. All All right, see you soon. See you. See you. Bye. Looks like our next question is from Laura in New Zealand. I was curious as to how you'd recommend handling narcissistic gift giving that could include gifts that are passive-aggressive, mean-spirited, competitive, that involve what's known as love bombing, or simply come with strings attached. We hear about practicing grace and gratitude with those who don't hear us about less being more but how should one respond to a gift that's given clearly as a put-down or a power play? Narcissistic gift-giving. TK, it seems to me that narcissistic gift-giving is, I don't know, like it's like loving violence in a way. It's like these things are oxymoronic, right? Because the spirit of a gift is what? To add value to someone else's life. I, I really dislike the idea that 
gift giving is a love language because it presupposes that there is love in a thing quite often, right? Mm. And well, you know us, it's love people use things, but sometimes things can be useful. And so I like to uncouple the gift from the love. And the way that I do that is by saying gift giving is no more a love language than pig Latin is a romance <laughs> language. Now, mm. let's be clear. I'm not saying gift giving is bad or wrong. I'm not saying pig Latin is bad or wrong. In fact, it was quite fun when we were kids to try to figure out how to reverse the words. And yet, people will think that I'm making a judgment there. We're going to talk to Ruslan a little bit about judgments. But I would like to talk to you right now, TK, about this concept of love bombing or narcissistic gift giving that Laura from New Zealand brings up. Yeah, I was just watching this movie too where there was a family party and there are two sons and one of the sons was engaged and he announced to his family at the party that he is now engaged and the parents were so proud and so happy. And there was the jealous brother who was like, oh, you're not going to one-up me. And so even though he's not even engaged or interested in getting engaged, he grabs his girlfriend and goes up there and sings a song and does this big, elegant show and says, and we too are engaged. And she's like, what? He's like, just go with it, go with it. And the parents are even more proud, right? And so this is a classic example of using good news as a way to compete with someone else, as a way to signal I'm better than you. I'm going to buy you this gift because the last gift you bought me was so cheap. This is going to show you that I'm the one that's more caring in this relationship. Or maybe you buy my mom a $5 gift and I chuckled condescendingly. <laughs> well, Momsy, I got you the $500 gift. <laughs> Don't you love me more? <laughs> you know, gift giving as competition, gift giving as self-congratulation. The way you opt out of that game. It's the same way you deal with the game of tug of war that you don't want to be a part of. In order to play tug of war, one person has to hold the rope on that end. The other person's got to hold the rope on this end. And as long as we're both pulling, man, we got a game that's capable of lasting forever. And it will be a test of strength because the one that pulls the strongest will be able to stand self-righteously above the other and say, I beat you. But you can always let your end of the rope go. And the game is instantly over. And that person doesn't look stronger. In fact, they kind of look like a cloud as they fall backwards in this vain game. And when it comes to narcissistic gift giving, you can simply opt out. You can just quit playing. If someone's giving you a passive aggressive gift, you can let them know, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't like the spirit that is behind it. And I say no to that. If it's truly the thought that counts, will then never accept a gift with a thought behind it that says, F you. Mm. Yes. We often think that we can't opt out. I must play mm. this game. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a trap because now I feel as though I have to do something I don't want to do. I'm obligated to give you a gift or I'm obligated to accept your gift. I'm obligated to play the game that you're playing. Or even worse, I too am obligated to be the narcissist to match your energy. Yeah. And that destroys a relationship. But when you opt out, you're doing so lovingly. You're not saying, screw you, I hate you, I dislike you, your gifts are, whatever it is. It's simply saying, hey, I'm not playing that game. Laura, I'd love to send you a copy of our book, Essential, uh, there are 12 chapters in there, 12 areas of intentional living. 
It's an essay collection, 150 different essays from the minimalists. And in that book, there's an entire chapter about minimalist gift giving, several Mm. essays about gifting, but with intention. I think you'll enjoy that. If you enjoy our podcast, we'll send you the audio book version of Essential. Or if you want the book book or the ebook version, we'll send those to you as well. Looks like we got some questions from social media. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalists. Our first question is from Yvonne on Twitter. How do we stop letting go? What does this look like in day-to-day life? What a fascinating question. Not how do I stop holding on, but how do I stop letting go? Because Mm. this is the inverse side. When we hold on to everything, we're often called hoarders, right? right? And Ryan and I, we did an entire episode about the five stages of hoarding. And what you recognize in there really quickly is that 90 plus percent of Americans are at least stage one hoarders. That's not a judgment. It is merely a fact based on the clinical definitions of hoarding. Light clutter in two or more rooms means you're a stage one hoarder, right? Now, you go beyond that. The people we see on our TV screens where we can sort of point and sneer and say, oh, look, I'm not as bad as them because Mm. uh, you can still walk through my house Mm. or I don't have dead cats in the freezer. So look at me. (laughs) I must be better than them. And it's like, well, no, this isn't a competition of who can hold on more or hold on less. But then we have this opposite problem where Mm. the pendulum often swings the other way. And when people have misconceptions about minimalism, one of the biggest ones is that we are ascetics or that we are Spartanists. Now, a Spartanist is actually on the same continuum Mm. that a hoarder is. A Spartanist is a person who can't hold on to anything. You usually see it in stuff where they get rid of everything, right? And then they start, after they've let go of all the superfluous consumer goods, they start letting go of the things that add value to their life. And their life becomes markedly worse as a result. And then they start letting go of the essentials. And often they end up homeless because they can't even hold on to that. They have the, they have the need, the compulsion to keep letting go and everything becomes slippery. Mm. And when all the stuff is gone, they start letting go of relationships or they start letting go of their career or they start letting go of their passions, of their community, of the city they live in. They're constantly letting go. They have the compulsion to let go, let go, let go. Mm. It's like when my daughter, she gets on the monkey bars. If she can only hold on to the first bar, she's hoarding that bar and she can't move on. She can't move forward. The same problem if you're a Spartanist, you put butter all over her hands, she also can't hold on. She also can't get anywhere. The key then is to figure out when to hold on and when to let go. Because in order to move forward, we have to constantly hold on, let go, hold on, let go, hold on, Mm. let go. It's the only way we can move forward. Man, that is so good. You're, You're bringing to mind, you know, like the, the image of, of the parent who's, Kids are just acting totally crazy. And the parent says, that's it. I want everybody to get there together and we're all going to have a good time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, okay, I don't think that's how having a good time works. But there are moments in life that feel like that, right? Like we make ourselves have a good time and whether you're having a good time or not, we're going to have one. Letting go is kind of like enjoying yourself. You don't have to have a rule about it that says, I got to stop doing this. Just allow yourself to enjoy yourself, right? 
Um, and that doesn't mean that everything that feels convenient or fun is going to be healthy or what have you. That's not what I mean. But there, this question seems to kind of have a rule behind it. You know, I'm in the process of letting go. Am I, am I doing too much of it though? And, 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 and it sort of implies that there's kind of like a religious dimension to letting go, that letting go is something that you need to do. Mm-hmm. Letting go is something that you're supposed to do. And we've talked about this before, how there, there are two, equi- two sides to the minimalism coin. On one end, you don't let society tell you what you have to own. But the other side is also true. You don't let society tell you what you have to get rid of, right? You get to own and get rid of whatever you need. It's based on your values. What are your preferences? What are your priorities? What are your principles? Is what you're doing a reflection of that? If so, go for it, right? So when do you stop letting go? You stop letting go the moment when continuing to let go feels like something that you're doing out of duty and obligation. That's beautiful. We often think about letting go as actually something we have to do, Yvonne, so that you know we think about letting go, like in order to let go of this coffee cup, I must do something. But the truth is, I don't have to do anything. Letting go is not something you do. It's something you stop doing. I stop holding on to it. Now, if I did that, if I just stopped clinging to it, it would fall and it would break on this floor. So I'm not going to do it. I, so how do I stop letting go? You just hold on a little bit longer until it's appropriate to let go. Yeah, you, you do it to be free, not to be a good minimalist. Mm. Nadine has a question from us uh, on Facebook. Are there conversational tips or prompts you can suggest to help us the moment we catch ourselves judging others? So TK, we'll be talking with Ruslan in a moment about judgment. And so I wanted to get this question in there. We could sort of build off of this together. Here's my pithy answer, even though this isn't the lightning round. I I wrote something down because I thought it was applicable here. Well, here's the pithy answer. Acceptance is nice, but needing acceptance is a prison, right? And so quite often what we're doing is we're judging others Mm -hmm. or avoiding judging others just so we can get their acceptance. And if I, I like having TK's acceptance. I like having the acceptance of people in here, but as soon as I need it, it actually ceases to be the thing that is beautiful and joyous because now I'm just meeting a requirement. And as soon as I've met my requirement that I can move on, all right, my requirement for acceptance, I've had 13 people accept me today. My quota is full. <laughs> and, but then tomorrow, oh, I've only had eight people who have accepted me. I, I must be deficient, right? Mm. And it becomes a, a, a sort of prison in a way. Yeah, that's good, man. Um, I think curiosity here is the key. And we've talked about this so much, but my my three questions are, why is that? What is it about that? And how so? You can ask one of those three questions to anything that someone says that you might feel inclined to judge. And what that does is it gives you an opportunity to go beyond your own assumptions and understand what that person is saying or doing from their point of view. Because sometimes, no matter how obvious the truth seems, we might be hearing something other than what they intend to say. We Mm. might be understanding them in a way that's different from how they wish to be understood. Communication is complex. 
People use the same words and mean entirely different things. People say things that mean something definite to you, but something that's fluid and flexible to them. We all have different backgrounds, and it can be very dangerous to assume that just because you think the meaning of what someone says and does is obvious, that that's all there is to be said about it. So you still have the opportunity to judge them later if you need to. There's no expiration date on that, right? So if someone says or does something that bothers you, you can say, hey, what is it about that that you love so much? Or why is it that you did it that way as opposed to another way? Or how so? What's the logic behind that? If you hate their answer, guess what? You still get to judge them after that. Mm -hmm. But this just creates a buffer that gives you the opportunity to understand. And sometimes it might make the other person become conscious of what they're saying or doing and the impact that it has on you. And to take that a little bit farther, you can always ask yourself, why do I feel compelled in this moment to make that judgment? Mm -hmm. What in me, what insecurity generally in me promotes that judgment? You know, it could be something as silly as, oh, look at their hair. How silly is that? Okay. What, What about me? What's going on inside me? Because there isn't like, well, their hair is fundamentally wrong. None of us here are going to think like, well, there is a right way to do your hair and a wrong way to do your hair. The funny thing is that's what Ryan was alluding to earlier. We have a, um, a uh, we put a poll up on, on YouTube and, and we asked like, all right, everyone vote. Who's, what's your favorite hairstyle on The Minimalist? Is it, is it Josh's hair with the pompadour, pompadour? Is it Ryan with the aging rock guitarist hair? <laughs> or TK with the fresh MJ baldy because hair is not minimalist. <laughs> and shockingly, they all voted for Ryan. And so we're, <laughs> we're, we're retiling the ballots right now. I saw several <laughs> hanging chads. <laughs> and so we're going we're gonna to fix that on the back end. And, uh, <laughs> but like, that's a fun way. It's not yeah. an actual judgment in the sense that like, it's just an opinion, right? That's right. And we're not saying well, Ryan's hair is right and therefore TK's hair must be wrong and Josh's hair must be wrong. That's so right. What we're saying is I have a favorite. Oh, okay. So all of my judgments are just my own opinion anyway? Yeah. <gasps> Shocking. Now I'm free. I'm <laughs> yeah. free from having to judge someone else because whenever my self-righteousness creeps in, whenever my desire to put someone else down creeps in, I realize, oh, wait a minute. That is simply my opinion. And mm-hmm. I can set down that mm-hmm. opinion as quickly as I picked it up. But by the, by the way, for me, one of the biggest contributors to helping me let go of judgments about other people was realizing just how wrong I am the overwhelming majority of the time when I make assumptions about what's going on in other people. Like, I'm terribly bad at this. There are very few times in my life I have ever been right when I try to evaluate where another person was coming from. I'm almost always shocked, right? And I, I, I think sometimes when we look at another person's behavior and we judge them, like um, uh, you're, you're taking that situation too dramatically or you're taking that situation too personally or you're overreacting to this, it's because we're putting ourselves in their shoes and saying, well, if, if I experienced that same situation, I would react this way. Or we're taking a moral belief we have and say, well, this would be the right thing to do for someone who has the power to make a choice. Yeah, but you're not the one that's in that situation. Mm. What's their background? What's their experience? What things do you know that they don't know? What things do, do, do they know that you don't know, right? And 
do they have the power to choose? In what ways have they been compromised by maybe addictions that you don't know about, weaknesses that you don't know about, threats that you don't know about? You just never know. And by asking questions, you can build confidence in just how wrong you can be about other people's invisible intentions and struggles. We got so much more to talk about, Alabama, including a bunch of simple living segments. But first, what do you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, this is Jenna from Salt Lake City. I just had a quick comment about your last episode about giving and gifts. As someone who likes to make things as gifts for other people, I really appreciate um, how you guys approach the thank you very much. This is so much time that I'm not going to use this. Would you like it back? I think that's probably probably the best way at least I've found to handle gifts that other people give me that I can't use or for other people to handle gifts that I've made for them that they aren't going to use. Um, it's a very thoughtful and it respects the time and energy that was put into the gift without um, accepting the, the guilt or the necessity of keeping it. Hi, my name is Stephanie. I'm calling from Michigan, and I'm calling with a comment for um, two, maybe three suggestions. The first one is there's a website and an app called Think Dirty, where it will list ingredients of makeup and kind of give a clean score based on their chemicals and everything that's inside them. Um, so if you're looking for a clean alternative, you can scan makeup products that you already have and kind of either score. If you're looking for more... Um, better alternatives with the better ingredients, they'll give you alternatives listed, and then you can actually shop right from their app as well. Um, my second suggestion would also be they called Good On You. Um, it's where they list uh, ecologically responsible and animal-friendly um, alternatives to makeup and clothing, so you can search on their website if you're looking for, you know, lipstick, primer, foundation, everything like that. And my third suggestion would be, is my own little personal rule, is I typically have one quality makeup item for each you know specific area so if i'm looking for eyeliner i have one quality eyeliner if i'm looking for mascara i have one mascara tube at a time so this helps to cut down on my makeup that way i don't have you know 17 different eyelash and um, eyeshadow palettes as well Welcome back to The Minimalist. I'm here with Malabama TK Coleman and we have a very special guest in the studio YouTuber, musician, Ruslan is here. Renaissance man, <laughs> collector of fine plants off of Amazon, <laughs> breeder of fine horses, and uh, all things Jesus related. Ah, well, we you're, you're here today because I want to disagree with you in a productive way. Let's do it. We're going to get there. But first, I want to find ways to agree with you. <laughs> Let's do it. TK has been on the podcast for a while now, and Ryan is on vacation currently. He's roaming the streets of, well, the forests of Wyoming and Montana right now. <laughs> Although uh, earlier in the episode, he, he called in and we had a nice little chat. But right now, we're talking about disagreements. But I want to figure out what we agree on first. I feel like there are so many things that we do agree on and we find common ground on. That's, in fact, that's why we brought TK on the podcast he had been on the podcast 11 times, and I felt like he was Bill Russell. He had won the championships, <laughs> all of them. And let's just drag him on back out to California. We, we got him here. And the reason we got him here is Ryan, TK, and I all have different religious beliefs. Okay. We have different spiritual beliefs. We have different personalities. We believe different basketball teams are better than the others. 
And yet, we're able to disagree in ways that are really fruitful. The audience finds those disagreements fruitful because we're never like being accusatory or arguing. And I feel like we can have that sort of conversation with you today. And I wanted to start by the pivot that you've made over the last few years, because you're a very talented musician. In fact, I want to listen to one of your songs here in a moment. But you've also pivoted. You're still making music, but you've pivoted to being a creator on YouTube. What inspired that? The pandemic inspired that. Best thing that, that ever happened to me. <laughs> Where does that sound? Sorry to anyone who's had it rough. But for me, we was doing shows, touring, and I was doing well. Like for an independent musician, you know, we were consistently grossing six figures every year from 2015 until 2019, 2020. When That's the top 1% of musicians. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was great. So between licensing, between, gosh, there's so many different revenue streams for music. And the pandemic happened and I said, okay, well, I can't do shows. And that's a big lion's share of the revenue. People weren't doing features as much and I, I didn't have an album ready. So I said, okay, well, I had this concept with YouTube of doing commentary in a live stream format and then chopping them down into individual clips and doing multiple uploads. I was already doing a, a video a day at that point, interviewing friends back, backstage green room, having conversations like this. I said, let me just pivot and try this idea of multiple uploads in a day. And that just touched the algorithm and the channel just kind of kept doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling from about the end of 2020 into, into now. And so it's been really good. Yeah. And why, why the commentary side of things? Is this something you were doing before? What interests you about, about commenting on other people's videos, which we'll obviously get into later, but, but because I left a comment on one of your videos that spawned a video that you created. Yeah, to help create a whole inception of videos yeah. on top of yeah. each other. Spawning this episode. Spawning this episode. <laughs> and then I'll do a reaction video to this conversation. Can we react to my reaction of your comment? <laughs> no. Uh, I, so when I was looking at what, what value I can add, like the practical utility of what I can add, I had did music and that was like what my passion was. But if I was sober and honest with myself, I have been leading men's Bible studies for 20 years. The, the moment I, I started going to church, we would have these men's groups and people would get together and we would talk and we would share about our struggles. And But then we would always talk about what's happening in society, what's happening in culture, what's happening with, when I came to faith, it was the 9-11 and the Iraq war and the Afghanistan. And we would have people with different political views and all these different things. And so as I look back, the thing that I spent the most time talking about was my faith and what was happening in society and trying to make sense of that through the lens of my faith. Hmm. So I just was naturally into that. It was yeah. just what we were doing. And I spent the most time funneling these views through scripture and through my own life experiences. And so I said, this is the stuff I think people really want. We can create this like really curated, like awesome, I'm going to give you three ways to do better for breakthrough, right? And, and I got friends that make videos like that and they're amazing. But I think what people are desiring now is the candor. I think they want just that real deal. Mm -hmm. We're going to have a conversation. It's not going to be scripted. And that's how, and so we would, taking it back to these men's Bible studies, we would go out and we play basketball. And by the way, don't ever play basketball and then go have a Bible study. It's the worst. <laughs> and we'd be on the basketball court. We'd be cussing each other out. Like it was bad. Like we were not. And then we'd, we'd all sit and just be fuming at each other and be like, all right, I, I guess we got to pray now. Start talking about our one-year Bible. <laughs> but, but, it was, but it was that masculine, competitive edge. And just again, just being frank with each other. And I think when people started seeing that kind of stuff in a YouTube format, they were like, oh, like, 
I like this and we don't have enough of these conversations. So it's a, it's an interesting tension that I live in as a content creator because I can't put everything online, mm-hmm. but I want to put as much of my authentic self online. And that's kind of the, the beat of the the zeitgeist right now. It's like mm-hmm. authenticity overall, but sometimes authenticity can not be productive, right? Because sometimes your, your honesty isn't always the truth. So there's that whole tension. Mm. Did I answer your question? I feel like I, 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 I'm not trying to dance. No. But that, yeah, it, I, that, it, I, I, this is just what I was good at. It was, it was, it was, this is what I was good at. This is what I spent the most amount of time doing. And I wanted to speak to people on a regular basis. And I think I was in a place where I was congruent enough with my own faith. There was no cognitive dissonance. There was no skeletons in my closet, no weird things I had tucked away. Like I was, this is who I am. Mm. And I, di- I didn't like the music industry side of things. It, the, the, the models, the business models, the recouping, all that stuff. I was just so burnt having gone down that rabbit hole, trying to do stuff with major labels. And I was like, you know what, YouTube, this seems super fertile. People are at home. Why not? And it, it worked. It worked out. There's no skeletons in my closet. I like to think of a skeleton as just an imperfection that you're unwilling to talk about. That's good. But the moment you're willing to just bring it into the light and say, yeah, this is the real me, it's no longer a skeleton. It's no longer a thing that people can hold over your head. And I like how you even mentioned just how you would go play basketball and you guys would get at each other. And then it's like, all right, we're swearing at each other. And now we got to calm down and go pray. There are people who would feel like, oh, I can't admit that. That's a skeleton. Mm. And, and then the moment someone hears them swear or laugh at a joke where someone swears, it has scandal around it. But with you just being forward about it and saying, yeah, I lost my cool yeah. on a basketball court. And then I had to pull myself together and go pray. I like that element of authenticity. I think it's interesting that you mentioned this happened during the pandemic. Do you think this embracing of authenticity was correlated with a lot of the celebrities kind of losing their ability to be in their studios, have scripts written for them. And they were kind of forced into a position where they had to be real. And a lot of them just checked out and stopped creating, period. And that just kind of opened up a door for people to just say, hey, we're willing to create without the makeup, without the cameras, without all the fancy stuff. I think we discovered during the pandemic how real it can get, Mm. how much the world is chaotic and can turn dark quickly. Mm. And I think that exposed a lot of people for their lack of ability to move, maneuver, think deeply, have meaningful conversations. And so I think you're absolutely right. I think there was a lot of folks that just were blindsided and they're used to a, we always, I always make fun of these folks in music industry. Um, the one of the worst terms you can have and you can live by in the music industry is industry standard. Mm-hmm. Right, you, it, 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 the industry. You got to have a road manager. You got to have a manager for the road manager. You got to have a merch guy. You got to have a merch guy manager. You got to have this the DJ, the sound guy, the light guy, the assistant light guy, the setup crew. And then I got friends that were grossing millions of dollars on tour, coming home broke. Yeah, because of industry standard. And yes. I think when we killed that and we said, you know what, people just want the real. They want to see you in your element based on your experience and what you have some expertise on, give them that real. But yeah, I think it's all about, I think celebrities were exposed by the industry standard. You have to go to a $1,500 a day studio to record music. No, you don't. No, you don't. You could literally do it on a iMac and a daggone USB microphone and it goes crazy on Spotify. And that's, we also saw that happen in the music industry where people started completely moving around the major labels and doing incredible things. And so, yeah, there was that disruption of everyone was at home, technology kind of all hit and it just changed, I think changed the landscape for what was happening. Mm. I think people want both in some way. They want the authenticity that you can get 
from the direct to the audience experience where it's not filtered through corporations and censors, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But then they also appreciate high production value to a certain extent, right? And I, I noticed you've done that really well on your channel. As your channel has grown, what you've done is incorporated a lot of production value. You, you've upgraded your set. You've got the backdrop. You've got the cameras. You have the staff. You, you have people who are helping you realize that vision. So you're getting the high-end production. And what we saw during the pandemic was all of a sudden when Trevor Noah is broadcasting from his garage, <laughs> it doesn't, you're like, oh, this was only compelling because of the yeah. industry standard, it's right? It's good. And if you can strip that away, you know, I think of you know, someone who's really popular like a, a Joe Rogan, for example, there's not a whole lot of production value that goes into that, Right. And yet he, he gets a huge audience. So they re- really want those direct conversations. But if you can add the sheen, you can add the aesthetic on top of something that is meaningful, that is communicative, that is expressive, then you create something special. Because what you're saying, you're signaling to your audience like, hey, I care about you. It's like an album cover doesn't make for a great album. But if you have a great album, you want it to have a great album cover as well. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I think my vision and strategy is how can I make the biggest impact with the smallest imprint? You know, so so how can I make the biggest impact with the smallest like amount of manpower behind it and people behind it? Mm-hmm. And I feel like because I'm a creative first, then that just becomes easier because I know that like I'm looking at you guys at studio and I'm like, okay, I like the lighting, what cameras are they using, what lenses are on the ca- like I'm watching, I'm paying attention to all of it because I'm a naturally creative. So how can I do what you're describing, make a really good production mm-hmm. with just me and Zach Sparazzo, who's my COO. And right. it's just us two and we got a couple of remote editors and I'm training my nephew up to help. How can we do the most with the least? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what breeds for innovation. Jay-Z said that out of necessity creates innovation and the need to progress and do something forward right he, he never got a record deal so he just built his own record label yeah you know and i think that's what we're seeing happening and often the opposite happens someone who goes through the system through the industry whatever realizes like oh this doesn't work for me you were talking about your friends who go on tour and they can make theoretically a ton of money yeah. but they don't bring any of it home right yep. uh, i remember when I, we put out our first film no one wanted to touch it minimalism uh, and this was back in 2015. We finished it 2016. We put out, in, we figured out how to put out in theaters. So we hooked up with this really small distributor who would get it into 400 theaters, US, Canada, Australia. And it was the number one indie doc of 2016 in theaters, which at first sounds really impressive to you realize like, wait a minute, when the hell have I went to go see an indie doc in a theater? <laughs> like never, I, I don't. And so a lot of people went to go see it in theaters relative to other indie docs, but not a lot of people saw But it made enough money, but I didn't see any of that money because mm. you start to learn the term Hollywood math and everyone has a sort of hand <laughs> in, in the cookie jar. And, and before you know it, you're like, oh, we were lucky to break even on that. And, and so what you're realizing now is that, oh, I most of these things I can do by, by mm-hmm. myself. And there was a time where you couldn't do it by yourself. And, and in order to, to record an album, you had to go to a studio yeah. back in the 70s or 80s. Uh, after that, though, and you know, one of the best-selling albums of all time, David Gray's White Ladder, he recorded in his bedroom mm. back in 99, 2000. And you realize, like, for a long time, if we're willing to jump over a few hurdles, we're able to do this on our own. And it's not to say I would shun every major corporation, but also realizing you don't need anyone else. And you can model yourself after a hundred different people. You take each of their recipes, you tweeze out an ingredient or two, and you're creating your own recipe. 
That's good. That's good. Do you think that wall was pushed out longer by the system than it needed to be? Meaning you saw this in 98, 99. I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know people were recording at home. And so I think late 2010s or like when I heard Drake did his album on tour yeah. and I was like, oh, they did that on the inbox on tour. I didn't know that until a decade later. And even still, there was still this, this veil, like, no, you have to go to a real studio, like a real studio. Mm -hmm. I think it took a while for at least folks in my context to break out of that. You don't need a machine or you don't need industry standard to do great art. Yeah. I mean, when you think of what is, what is a studio even like we're in a studio technically right now, but like this is just a room in an office building and we painted a wall black and we brought a desk in and some microphones and some cameras and now we call it a studio, right? Yeah. You can do that effectively anywhere now, mm. even if it's, you know, prosumer grade equipment or yeah, everyone has access to even high-end equipment. But mm. even if you don't have access to that, you can make something that looks stunning on an iPhone if you have the right artistic vision. That's good. I, I think there's this <clears throat> prevailing idea that it's an insult to our craft if we don't do it at the highest level possible, mm. right? If I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to do it quality, which can easily lead to this kind of perfectionism that says, well, I'm never going to do it unless I got a multi-million dollar budget. And it can be real easy for people who have movie ideas, podcast ideas, book ideas to say, I'm going to wait till I get the deal and the distribution first, then I'll pour my soul into it but you got to be willing to pour your soul into it first. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that causes the various elements you need to make it quality to come together. In fact, you don't get to think creati creatively about quality until you're just willing to do it wherever you are. It's good. I wish yeah. we had a sound effect. We could just hit one of those <laughs> DJ Clue does a storm <laughs> bomb drops. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. So I assume you've learned a lot as you've gone down this other path. You're still making music, but this new path, which occupies a lot more of your time, have you have you been wrong about anything? Have you learned anything that you've been wrong about? What are oh, two or three gosh, things that you've yeah. learned? Lots, man. Uh, I tend to be very liberal when it comes to cultural things, mm -hmm. you know? So I just kind of go, ah, it's art. It's art. Like, leave it alone. It's art. And oftentimes that art can be destructive, you know, and that art can be counterproductive and that art can impact people in a negative way. So I've, de I've definitely taken the the stance in terms of a lot of cultural societal things it's like oh this is just this is just art mm. and not knowing the impact and the weight and the gravity that top-down culture can have on people mm -hmm. i think now we're in a place where we can build culture bottom up but mm. top-down culture i think i've been uh, historically i've been a, a little too loose on that and give me I, an example uh, the first Kendrick album, the, uh -huh. for the, for the, uh, the my first set of Kendrick reviews with the, with the, I had um, Damn, and I had somebody from Dissect on, a friend of mine from Dissect on, and we went over it. And he's like, yeah, no, 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 this is a great, this is a great, wholesome Christian album. It's, a, it's awesome. And I'm like, yeah, no. And he like walks me through it. And, and it's like, okay, you're, you're in, in, you're implying, you're, you're uh, in, 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 in Bible study terms, we call uh, uh, exegesis and eisegesis, right? Where you're, you're, you're adding a whole bunch of stuff to the context mm. of that. That has nothing to do with it. And that's what he was doing. He was just, it's in hindsight, it feels like that. And so I think that was something that I can come out and be like, yeah, no, 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 this is, this is good. But then the, the, trickle down effect of it isn't good. The right. trickle down effect of how something like a damn album and then the new album can impact people. Mm -hmm. People I know personally isn't isn't helpful. Um I think some of the the Kanye stuff I've kind of, you know, I I've met Kanye. I I know him uh through Instagram. We follow each other on Instagram, that that sort of thing. But 
want being excited when someone of faith comes, so, someone in, in culture comes to, to faith and you're like, yay, like we have our guy, uh-huh. you know? Yeah, and yeah. then it's like, Danny's talking about Skeet Davidson and burying him and chopping off his head in a video. And you're just like, dude, this is, this is bad. Like, this is a bad look. This everything about, and this is not at all in line with what you were doing on Jesus is King. And isn't that the problem with, we, we, place people on pedestals Absolutely. quite often yeah. and without even realizing it even because realizing I really it. like something they created and all of a sudden I'm tethering that person to the art and vice versa, right? Like we, we can go back and, and look at Picasso and realize like, yeah, he was probably not the nicest person to people, right. especially to women. And we, so then we try to throw the baby out with the bathwater and we say, well, you know what? Uh, because I don't like who he was as a human, by the way, measured by today's standards as well, as well then I'm going to also throw out or dismiss the the art. Yeah. And it's a tough, that's a tough balance because someone's art can touch you in a, in a very profound way and inspire you and do all kinds of things. But then who they represent in a public profile and how they're behaving and how they're not getting treatment, specifically with Kanye, can also be very... Uh, alarming and then set a, a, a harsh precedent to people that are trying to figure it out. And they're like, oh, so this is cool. Like I can behave this way. And it's like, mm. no, 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 no. <laughs> you can't, this is, Kanye is not the poster child for Christianity. Like that's not okay. Mm. So I think there's been times like that where I've definitely been like, oh man, I, I probably uh, I probably jumped out the window a little too soon with getting excited about someone. And, and again, I have mutual friends. I know the people around him where he's had around him. So this stuff like that, um, I, uh, politically, you know, I, I was a big supporter of Andrew Yang and in hindsight, I'm kind of like, uh, I don't know if this UBI thing is a good idea, uh-huh. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so, um, I didn't vote for him, but I was, def- I came to a couple uh, campaign events and we had some mutual friends and in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. You know, I'm, I'm, I probably am more, more of a libertarian now than I am. And, and, and Andrew Yang has some good ideas, but I think at the time it was like, this makes sense. Automation is going to kill everything. Right, what are we gonna do, Andrew Yang? And then, in, and now, in hindsight, I'm probably like, eh, that's probably that wasn't a good idea. So yeah, and I, I do this. Stuff. I mean, and so I have to. I tell my audience all the time, like, oh yeah, like I blew it on this, guys. You know, I'm trying to think of some other videos I've made where I've like said something and then I went back and had to clean up and clarify something. But yeah, it's, it's happened quite a few times. I've had to apologize to my audience. It's mainly what my the relationship with my audience is like, no, guys, I was wrong on this. Like my bad, you know, Mm. or, Hey, I got a little too passionate on this video, which is why I started pre-recording certain videos that I knew I would get passionate on. I'm like, let's pre-record it. So like my tone is correct that I don't, I'm not angry. Right. Cause people confuse passion with angry anger. So yeah, I've definitely gotten it wrong on quite a few things. Yeah. I I love your, your commentary on not hitching your philosophical wagon to a personality sometimes we get that with the negative, right? Like if there's some guy over there behaving in an embarrassing way, he claims to believe the same things I believe. Well, he doesn't represent me. But sometimes, man, when it's Michael Jordan, you know, when it's that Mm -hmm. celebrity you look up to and then they come into your ism or whatever ideology you defined yourself by, it's like, oh, yay, that validates my beliefs. But if you accept it when it happens, then you're going to be crushed when that person abandons it. And I, I saw that happen with a lot of people when Kanye put on the red hat mm-hmm. and he started hanging out with Trump. So many people were like, yeah, Kanye is for us. And then as soon as Kanye decided that he wasn't in that mood anymore, because <laughs> he changes moods, you know what I mean? Yeah. As soon as Kanye decided, okay, I'm going to play a different game now and I'm going to talk a different way about Trump and the MAGA hat and so on, then all of those people kind of felt betrayed and abandoned. And it's like, you know, if you're going to believe something or practice something, do it for you, not because of some good. celebrity. Yeah. 
But I, I love the way that you keep it real with your audience and say, hey, I think I was wrong about this. It's easy to believe that trust is the result of always knowing what you're talking about. But I, I imagine that increases trust when you say, hey, I was wrong about this thing that I was really confident about a few months ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've, I've been more intentional to do that with my kids. You know, I got a seven-year-old and I'm like, hey, dude, like, dad was frustrated yesterday and I was not okay the way I spoke to you. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think th that builds that trust and that rapport to be like, yeah, like, that's my dad and, and, and he's awesome, but he's going to mess up. But at least when he messes up, he's going to tell me like, yeah, I messed up, you know, and let's, let's move past this. Okay, real quick question about this. Some people smell blood when you do that. Okay. There are some people who say, oh, you were wrong about this. And the moment you admit that you were wrong, they want to try to manipulate you and control you. All right, now mm -hmm. I want you to donate $5,000 here and I want you to do a PSA mm -hmm. and so on. Do you ever feel any sense of risk when it comes to admitting that you're wrong? Um, and, and how do you deal with people who might want to use opportunities to catch you being wrong, gotcha moments, to kind of manipulate you or embarrass you? There is this interesting thing within my circles specifically where people want you to, I don't know, make penance, right? So let's just let's just say this, and this is this is not my position, but this is a position. Um, you can't be a Christian and vote Democrat, right? This is a real thing, and it comes from a lot of the far end MAGA cult people. Yes, I said MAGA cult, not, and not everyone who's MAGA is MAGA cult, but there's those folks on our fringes that are like Christian, and they're like MAGA all the way, and so. If someone hypothetically voted Democrat, let's just say they vote. I didn't, but let's just say they did. What do they have to repent of? Like, wh like, what is the actual thing that they're supposed to, right? Like, there's what, like, do I not vote that way in the future? Like, so it is this very much so gotcha. See, he's fit, fit in the label. And, and I think the labeling is the dismissal. Once mm. you're labeled liberal, Democrat, abortion, baby killer, blah, 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 right? Then... I don't have to hear anything you have to say on any topic, on any nuanced conversation because I've just labeled you as X, Y, and Z. And so mm -hmm. in my circles, it'll be a lot of, um, it'll be a lot of the really far end of the spectrum that would label me like a liberal Christian. And I'm just like, what, like, what does that even mean? Like, I'm fairly, like go over the things, right? Like I'm fairly conservative on just about every single thing. And then they'll, but, but I'm not as conservative as them. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, absolutely. Those people want to just label, dismiss you, and then you're gone instead of actually understanding what you're saying. And this, I'm just speaking from my hindsight, yeah. you know, and what I'm de dealt with, but I think it's also true on the far end of the far left spectrum of the gender ideology, you know, hey, you got to do this and this and this and believe in this and this and this. And if you don't, then you're a bigot. Yeah. It's like, well, wait a minute. I, I don't think anyone should be harmed. I don't, I think these people exist. I think we should love them and respect them and honor them. However, I disagree with this aspect and I don't think we should do this for kids. And no, you're a bigot. You're transphobic. It's like, okay. Yeah. Stop. Yeah. I want to. <laughs> I want to find a way to disagree with you during this podcast because what I've recognized is that as we're sitting here talking, it's like, oh yeah, we do have different beliefs, and it's okay because instead of otherizing you or TK or whomever and saying, well, now I'm excluding you because you don't think the same way I do, right. which is when you get granular enough, then you're going to eventually exclude everyone, yeah. right? Yeah. Because there's no way we're going to match up 100% on everything, right? And even if we match up 30%. Wow, how wonderful, how beautiful is that 30%? Maybe we can we can bask in the glory 
of our sameness, of our humanness that is there. And so we're going to check in with the uh, live stream in a second. Let's bring Zach back in the room. I know he's he's hanging out in the hallway there. And we'll check in the live stream. Uh, patrons, you can drop your questions, comments in the chat. We'll get to those soon. But before we get into that, I'd love to get to our lightning round. So it is time for our lightning round. This is where we answer your text messages. You can text your questions at 937-202-4654. Now, Ruslan, during the lightning round, this is where we do our best to answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. Okay. But not really. We just ramble on a okay. bit. And eventually, <laughs> podcast Sean, he, uh, he tweezes out something pithy. We call them minimal maxims, which we can share in the show notes. So during this lightning round, we're going to disagree a bit, but I'm hoping that we can disagree in a way where we end up finding common ground. Our lightning round question today is from Mike. What ways have you dealt with judgment from people close to you and your family? It always feels like the closer the person, the harder to handle. That sounds true to me, that if someone I don't know is down the street judging me right now, I, I don't think anything of it, right? But if TK has some sort of judgment about me, mm. I'm going to pause. And so the reason I thought this question was appropriate, and my pithy answer to the question is, judgment is a mirror that reflects the insecurities of the judge. And Ruslan, you made a video recently about Kendrick, Kendrick Lamar's new album. And I left that comment. And you made a video responding to it about judgment. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a misunderstanding there. And I want to apologize, first off, because it, the, there was a lack of clarity there. Because I wasn't saying that judgment is bad. I was simply making a statement about judgment. It is true that I make judgments every day of my life, right? Um, but whenever I'm making a judgment about TK or about my wife, I am reflecting, I'm holding up a mirror and looking at my own insecurities about that situation. So I'm trying to figure out where, where do we disagree there? So you said when you, judgment is a mirror mm -hmm. of your own insecurities. Yeah, the, yeah, it reflects the insecurities of the judge. Which if I'm judging, then I'm the judge in that scenario, yes. Yes, so I think I would disagree in the sense that if my wife tells me, hey, bud, you're gaining a little weight mm -hmm. and you're getting a little, uh, getting a little muffin top there mm -hmm. and we value fitness and I've been hitting my, you know, my wife's going through this whole fitness thing. She's crushing it right now and she's doing really well. So if she's holding me accountable, she's judging me. She's like, dude, like <laughs> you can't have cookies at night. Like, you know, you're not having sugar. Like, I don't think that's a insecurity of her, mm. I actually think that that judgment, which may sting in the moment, mm -hmm. and it may tell me I have to delay gratification or I have to not eat what I want to eat, may sting. It may be like, oh, that's that doesn't feel good. But I actually believe it's coming from a good and sincere place mm. to hold me accountable to the very same things that I said I value. So I don't think judgment is necessarily me projecting my insecurities. Mm -hmm. I think judgment is saying, hey, like, we're, we're minimalist. We're not consumed with consumerism. Yeah. But if you were with me in Vegas this past week and I'm walk, walking by the Gucci store and walking by the Louis store, like window shopping, you'd probably be like, dude, like, what are you doing? Like, it's okay. Or, or you, maybe like, do you want to get that one item? And do you really love this item that you're looking at getting? But I could be sober and we could be sober. They're like, dude, when I was at the, when I'm at the mall, I kind of become a consumer and that's not good. Hmm. And 
someone telling me that or reminding me of that, I don't think is an insecurity they're projecting. I think it's them holding me accountable to the very values I said I believe in. So real quick, first, when you gave the example of the cookies and getting on your fitness game, you looked right at me and it was my insecurities because I was just talking, <laughs> I was just talking to Danny Unknown before the show about how I need to slim down. I wasn't looking at you because I thought that, just to be clear. I was looking at you as an example of my wife with how she would look at me. So forgive me for that. God spoke today. You looked right at me. It was like, it's like fitness, for example, of all the examples. He could have said movies. He'd been using hip hop all show, damn, right at this moment. Anyway, it, it sounds like what you're saying that judgment is really the application of critical thought to any situation. I would would say so. Yeah, Yeah. it's evaluating. It's not necessarily expressing an insecurity. All right. Yeah, and so, TK, you and I have had these discussions previously about the difference between description and prescription. Maybe Mm -hmm. you can talk to me a bit about that. Yeah, so description is when you simply give an account or an explanation for what something is, right? If I say working out is when you push yourself outside of a comfort zone in order to develop strength or endurance. A prescription is when I make a claim about what you should or shouldn't do. There's kind of a value judgment. If I give a description of working out, I'm not saying that you should or shouldn't do it. I may think working out is bad. I may think working out is good, but I'm just giving a description. And it's the impression I got when you made this statement about judging is that you were giving a description of what you think judgment is. That's right. You weren't giving a prescription saying, hey, Therefore, no one should judge because you admit that's something that I yes. do and it's also a necessary part of life. Yeah, that, that's yeah. what Jesus said, not me. But um, the thing that's fascinating here between, because I, I am not telling, there's no prescription here. I'm, I'm trying to describe a particular truth. And I feel that, Ruslan, what, what I saw in your video is maybe just a misunderstanding of what I was trying to communicate. And that's why I apologize, because I was simply trying to describe that judgment is a mirror. But I wasn't trying to judge you specifically. Now, I will often judge things like consumerism, Mm -hmm. as you've mentioned, as a judgment there, without judging the consumer. And I think what we were talking about earlier with respect to the artists and their Mm -hmm, art, mm -hmm. I think it's the same thing with the person and and the actions, right? And and so I I will often look at something and say, oh, that's not something I would want to do. Mm. And we can bring, we can even pull back into something more innocuous. Mm. Like, I don't want to go on a cruise. That sounds awful to me. (laughs) Going on a cruise ship sounds terrible. And that is a judgment, but it's not a judgment to say, well, Ruslan is wrong. For going on a yeah, cruise. I've been on two cruises and I wouldn't go on a cruise again. So I think I'm with you there. <laughs> Prescriptive and descriptive. Right, but combined. you also, but then you wouldn't prescribe that and say, you know what? No one should ever go on a cruise ever again either. Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't, I would not prescribe that. I think, so let's back up a little bit. You said, Jesus said that. We're referencing Matthew 7, where it says, judge not, lest you be judged. Yeah. Right. So. I got that from your video, by the way. Yeah. yeah. So, so that passage is about judging hypocritically and judging and the hypocritically means like acting like judging over frivolous matters in a in a way where you are looking at the plank in your brother's eye while having or looking at the speck in your brother's eye while having the plank right mm-hmm. jesus later later on goes on to say judge righteously judge correctly mm-hmm. right so it's another one of those paradoxes that we see in scripture it's like don't judge over stupid, frivolous things. However, when you do have judgment and discernment, judge correctly, judge over weighty things. And so I think to your point, yes, I would agree. I think I think therein lies the tension of where we live. And when we're talking about judgment, the, the thing that we 
The thing that we miss, I think, is how these things top down impact people. So if we're talking food, Mm -hmm. right? Listen, vegan, paleo, carnivore, I don't care. 75% of Americans are overweight. I'm giving prescriptions. Mm. Lose some weight. Okay. You need need to get healthy. I want people to be here for their kids. I want them to feel better. I've been fat. I've lost weight. I've been fat. I've lost weight. I feel substantially better losing weight. I think there's that that's transferable. Strength training is transferable. Eating better, delaying gratification. These are all attributes that we see in other people and we go, right now, if you're okay with your status in life and how you feel and what your body looks like, that's different. But generally speaking, yes, I'm going to give the prescription. 75% of Americans are overweight. We need to we need to do something about that. That's not that's not good. That's not good for us as a species, as a society, for our families, for the economy. There's no measurable metric where we look and we go, in the same way we would say, man, average American has how much in, in debt? Average American has how many random things in their house that they don't need? Yeah. Yeah, we should fix that. Now, am I judging the individual fat person for being fat? No, I've been fat. I understand there's all types of reasons. People say calories in, calories out. What they're finding out is the calories out portion of it is actually changed all the time by your own hormonal state. When a woman is pregnant and her husband is around, they are the husband is more likely to put on weight because the calories out portion changes hormonally. So I've that's and I've, that's when I've gained all the weight. Every time my wife is pregnant, I gain 20 pounds. <laughs> it's terrible. I got my meal preps, uh, you know, the whole bit, but it's just awful. So I think... Yes, there's all kinds of reasons and there's all kinds of ways that we need to change. And sometimes it's hormonal, but that doesn't change the fact that the prescription should be, hey, you need to lose weight. What is the most optimal way? I think you should strength train. I think you should watch what you eat. I think you should eat a high protein diet with a lot of leafy greens. And that's 95% of the time that's going to be the prescription. And some people are the exception to the rule where you might have a thyroid issue. Your wife might be pregnant. There might be something going on hormonally. You're now with men. A lot of men have low testosterone. TRT is a big thing, which I'm all for. If you're in your 40s and your testosterone is low, go get some, you know, get your blood work done. So, so I think that's where we may disagree. Mm-hmm. I think we're all giving prescriptions all the time. Mm. I just, I, I don't think that we're sober enough about it. I think what you guys have done has been an amazing prescription for my life, mm. right? I mean, everything about getting rid of tennis shoes. Like I've minimalized my tennis shoes. I've minimalized the amount of clothes I have. I've minimal, all these different things have been as prescriptions. I don't know if anyone grabs a nonfiction book or turns on a documentary like minimalism and goes, I'm just going to watch this with some popcorn and not care about any of the implications this has for my personal life. I think people are looking for answers and looking for prescriptions. Yeah. I want to get to the essence of it because I think sometimes we're, we're saying something and we, we're using the same language, but we mean something different. When I talk about prescriptions, I think they can be really helpful in the sense of something that's mechanical. If you need to fix your bike or repair your car, and you break out a manual, that's a prescription on how to repair the car, right? When, when it goes beyond the mechanical is I think when we often get, well, we get stuck because the instead of prescribing the actions, what we try to do with the minimalists is help people understand the essence of the problem. And through understanding the problem, the how-to begins to take care of itself. Let me let me give you an example here. You won't ever see me and Ryan or TK talk about the 67 ways to declutter your closet because the problem is not a shortage of decluttering tips. There are plenty of those out there. By the way, the problem with people being obese, I, I too was obese at one point in time. I weighed 90 pounds more than I weigh now. Wow. And I the problem wasn't that I had lacked 
nutrition tips, that I lacked exercise tips. The problem was I didn't understand the actual implications of my behavior. And as soon as I understood the implications of my behavior, the change began to take place on its own. And then, yes, of course, I can follow, oh, here's a diet plan that might work for me. Here's an exercise routine that might work for me. But what is much more powerful is having that deeper understanding of, oh, this is the actual problem. Because quite often we're talking about the solutions. The solutions become another problem because discipline or motivation isn't there. And we think, oh, well, I'm just never going to do it. Of course, you're going to do it, though, if you really understand the weight, the gravity of the problem. Why versus what and how. Yes. That's what we're, that's the difference. I, I think so. Yeah. Yes. I like that. I like yeah. that. I would agree. I think, I think I, I could probably spend more time diving deeper into the why of things and the more the philosophical implications of it. And uh, what does that mean for us as a whole? And I am naturally a solutions based <laughs> pragmatic guy. So I prefer the what and the how, but I think you make a great point that like people need to understand what makes them tick or why they tick the way they tick. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, would you call it self-awareness? Would you call it like, sure. you, you know, like yeah. that unlocking of, man, I'm behaving this way. And, oh, and this is why, because everything about our society is created to, to make me a little consumer and not a producer. Ah, okay. I think, I, think, I think that's a great point. I agree with you. I think it's important also to make a distinction between judging the person and judging the process. I can say, hey, your process is inefficient or... If this is your goal, you're following a process that's not going to lead you there. And we can evaluate a process without saying you are unworthy to exist or you are a horrible person for getting something having to do with the process wrong. And I think when discussions on judgment come up, there, there are two things that produce tension. On one side, the person who's issuing the prescription, it can be easy for them to maybe judge the person because there are inefficiencies in the process. That's also true for the person who's listening. Sometimes if you're listening to someone criticize your process, it can be easy to take that personally, even when it's not. And you're coming from a religious person, a religious uh, perspective as well. And there's a lot of baggage that we carry as a culture when a person with a religious background speaks to us and gives us a prescription. Are you judging me? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Are you saying something bad about me? Are you calling me a sinner? And, and sometimes you can just be speaking facts. You can mm -hmm. just be saying, hey, look, if you want to get here, I didn't tell you this is where you got to go. That's your goal. If this is your goal and you want to get here, you need a process that's going to take you there because there's a causal connection between your beliefs, your behavior, and your results. And so sometimes that tension is something that everybody can contribute to. We can take things personally, even when they're not, and we can be personal even when we intend to be focusing on the process. But here's where I want to kind of drill a little bit more deeply into the disagreement here. He made a video about Kendrick Lamar, you said. Mm -hmm. I like to take it out of the abstract. What was the criticism? Because something that I think you would agree with is sometimes judgment is just critical thinking, but sometimes judgment is a mirror reflecting back the insecurities of the person. Sometimes it's, it's just not an automatic thing. What was it that was said about Kendrick Lamar that inspired you to make that comment? Oh, what a great question. Yeah, yeah. A thoughtful question too. Hmm. Yeah, I like Ruslan. And when I saw this, I was like, oh, I get, I get this. Because I, well, I didn't agree with the comments you were making about him. I also get... It was the Eckhart Tolle? Yeah, yeah. So there, there's... You didn't like the Eckhart Tolle 
sort of uh, uh, incorporation into the music. I, and you I, can, I didn't like any of the content of the music. <laughs> oh. Because to me, it's it's my favorite Kendrick album by Is far. It really? Yeah, wow. by far. Okay. There isn't even Respect. a close second. Um, wow. And and so what I realized in that moment is yeah. when I say favorite, I'm not saying because here's where we get caught up. We like to map our preferences. Sure. Professor Sean and I were just having a conversation about this beforehand about our own preferences. Yeah. He was talking about some book and like, oh, it's that person's best book. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? It just means mm-hmm. it's your favorite yeah. of theirs, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? I got, I got you. And so I, I work hard not to use superlatives in the sense that, oh, you know what? It's his best work or he's the greatest of all time. Well, w- whatever. Like, that's my opinion mm-hmm. of that, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I was really trying to communicate there is like, oh, my opinion is happens to be different from yours here. And in fact, what made the album so special to me mm-hmm. was exactly what turned you off about the album. And isn't that what great art does? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Can you unpack that specifically? What do you think? What did, what did you love that you think bugged me? There's a... Uh, what In there, I, I, I see the album as a man holding tightly to his ego, mm-hmm. but it's slipping through his hands mm-hmm. in a way. So... Many of the lines on there, you can, he still has that hubris of, you know, uh, be careful, I'll turn you into a song, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, things like that, where it's like, you could see his ego at play, but then you see these other moments where that ego is is falling away. And maybe Eckhart Tolle was the path that allowed that ego, not that the ego is a bad thing. I don't mm-hmm. think ego is bad. I don't think judgment is bad. Uh, where you and I might, where all three of us are going to disagree. I don't believe in good or bad. Um, and so what what I saw there, I was like, oh, this, this is mimetic of everyone's life. You, you have Eckhart Tolle and Kodak Black intermingled throughout the album. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, who would have even thought of that, right? Mm-hmm. But really, isn't that how we all are? Alan Watts talks about how light confers the darkness and darkness confers the light Mm -hmm. meaning we think they're two separate things but obviously we can't have one without the other sure Mm. yeah yeah i think i think that is not why i was frustrated with the album i think what he did what you just described that tension maybe not with eckhart tolle and in kodak I think all of that has kind of been interweaved on every album starting from Good Kid, Mad City, where there's this tension of good and bad and you got a good kid trying to figure it out and Compton and that whole thing. I think I think I don't have an issue with telling that story. I think good and bad, right and wrong. I think I have an issue with calling bad good and good bad. Mm, mm. I think that's, to me, is where I draw the line. When you start taking something that is celebrated and you you you, you frame it in a way where this thing that we all think is unhelpful i'm going to i'm going to glorify it and this thing that we know is harmful i'm going to say it's bad uh-huh. will, will be an example of that that you felt he did well i think uh, the crown of thorns mm-hmm. i think the crown of thorns i think i think eckhart tolle believes in inner christ divinity and that you can be your own god and your own consciousness and i quoted the parts from the book mm-hmm. and so you're claiming kendrick is claiming divinity with the crown of thorns and the, the irony of it all, and I don't know if he's actually aware how, how silly this all looks, you're wearing a $3 million crown of thorns playing dress up as Jesus and telling everybody you're not their savior. Like, it's so 
over the top and outlandish. It's like a SNL skit. But I don't think he's in on the joke. I think he's really trying to be fake deep. Oh no, I, I totally disagree. I, I think that what he's doing, you know, when you see him at the whatever the runway show was mm-hmm. in Paris. Mm-hmm. And that song in 95 is on. He talks about when you strip away everything. Yeah, which I actually all, like that song. Yeah. And we're all ugly when we strip away mm-hmm. all of the, these things. And that's playing. It becomes a parody. Uh, he's, he's mocking the very thing in which he's a part of. And that's what great art often does. You look at the Sistine Chapel and there's like a lot of mockery of what was going on at the time interwoven into the art so itself. You, so you think Kendrick is mocking himself by playing dress up as Jesus with a $3 million crown of thorns. I don't think he's taking himself seriously. Really? Yeah. I think Kendrick takes himself very seriously. You I think, think he takes you think his he's a spark conversation about it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, mm. and isn't that working? Yeah. I mean, right. <laughs> he's doing a good job. No, I think, I think there's some stuff that I think from a, a theological framework, if we're talking about someone that's positioned and anchored themselves as a follower of Jesus, and this is based on him saying he's gotten baptized a bunch of times. This is him saying, you know, he's gotten more serious about his faith and damn, this is him popping up at Christian marriage conferences. This is my, and his personal interaction and him telling me like, I believe in Jesus and this is how I choose to, to live my life. And then to see it go, the direct, the content go the direction that it has. I think it's very incongruent. And, and, and it's not one thing where, Hey, you're struggling. You're going through a hard time. You're on tour. There's girls around temptation. It's Oh, and I'm my inner divine Jesus. I am now Christ. I am God. Mm. I think that's very dark. And that is what I'm hearing on the record. I will say this. You mm. talked about the calling bad things good, good things bad. I'm sure you're familiar with the parable of the Chinese farmer. No, we're, maybe. I'm uh, yeah, the, my, my favorite version of it is from Alan Watts. I'll probably butcher it, but we'll at least walk through it really quickly. So there's a Chinese farmer. He has a horse. The horse runs away. Everyone in the town is like, oh, that it's so bad. They go mm. to him. Oh, I'm so sorry. Isn't that terrible? And the farmer says, Maybe. And next day, the uh, horse comes back with seven wild horses. Mm. And so now the farmer has eight horses and all the townspeople, the village people are like, oh, wow. How amazing. That, isn't that so good? And he's like, maybe. And the next day, his son is trying to break one of the, break in one of the wild horses. Mm-hmm. And the wild horse bucks, throws him off. Son breaks his leg. And the whole, all the townspeople are like, oh, that's terrible. Your son broke his leg. Isn't that awful? The farmer goes, maybe. The next day, uh, the conscription officers come into town to, well, try to conscript people into the war. They can't take a son because the leg's broken. And, of course, everyone in the town's like, wow, your son was spared. Isn't that good? And the farmer says, maybe. And we never know the actual implications of the so-called good things or the so-called bad things. And here's the beautiful thing about that is this so-called bad, you know, someone might call it a bad sort of confrontation between us online. I don't see it as bad at all. I see it as fruitful because it brought us here in this moment and we get to spend this time together. And how beautiful is that as opposed to me reacting in a way because, oh, uh oh, my beliefs are questioned. My desires are questioned. My way of life is questioned. And I need to hold on to it so tightly that I couldn't have a conversation like this where I open myself up and say, ah, maybe it wasn't bad. Yeah, that's good. Do you believe in good and bad? I try not to believe in anything. Okay. Do you believe there are things that are optimal for human flourishing and there are things that are counter human flourishing? On an individual level, yes. 
but but I don't know that it permeates the fabric of existence. Okay. Do you believe someone believing that they are God Almighty is good for their psyche, is good for their flourishing, is good for society, and that that being a theme in someone's music is helpful, that, that someone believes that they are God? You'd have to explain to me what God is in this scenario because if someone asks me if I believe in God, the answer to that is often which one. And I don't mean that pejoratively, mm-hmm. but I, I mean like, you know, if you go to India and there's 300,000 gods, it's like, well, I don't know what you mean by that. It's just like the same thing with someone. We were in here last, well, two weeks ago with uh, Peter Rollins, who's a radical theologian and certainly calls himself a Christian, but he's not a theist, mm-hmm. which was really fascinating to me. How, how do I, wait, you're, you're a Christian, but you're not a theist. Well, what does this mean exactly? And what I've learned is that we use words and I assume you mean one thing and you assume you mean something else, mm-hmm. right? And so if someone believes they are God, I would, I would simply ask, well, what does that person mean by that? Mm-hmm. I'd get really curious and thank God for T.K. Coleman because he he's taught me to get really curious about these things mm-hmm. as opposed to standing on the plinth, which I'm easy, uh, it's easy for me to do, just step up there and look down at people and say, oh, my point of view is right. And that's when you asked me about beliefs. Mm-hmm. I, I pick up beliefs all the time. So I'm not saying I don't have any beliefs, mm-hmm. but I hold them really loosely and I let go of them as soon as they're not serving me. Yeah, uh, Alex Hermosi says, choose beliefs that are serving you and probably find the same origin. So my, my question is, is there a point where you stop being curious? When mm-hmm. someone says, I am God, mm-hmm. or I believe I am God, and that is the logical conclusion of their theology, of their view of the world, yeah. is there a point where you go, yeah, no, you're out of your mind. Is <laughs> <laughs> right? there a point where you say, we, look, I, yeah. I understand what you mean now because yeah. I've been curious. I've been curious. <laughs> yeah. But I understand what you mean. <laughs> Is there a point at which I dismiss them, which means I stop being curious, essentially? Yes. Yeah, sure. I mean, okay. I dismiss things all the time. I'll proudly dismiss things that aren't... Yeah, because I have a finite time span today. I have 24 hours today, right? <laughs> like, I can't think this much about it. <laughs> I can't pick this up. I can't have this conversation. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't continue to be curious about it if I yeah. had infinite time to spend on that thing and then I could also do everything else. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, I'm going to dismiss it. But I, I will get real curious about that because if someone tells me that, I mean, I don't what do you mean by God? And what do you mean I what do you mean by I am? And oh really, how long have you been God? You know, and and it's really thanks to TK that I ask questions like this and I don't get dismissive right away. Yeah. Because that was my that was my position before. I, 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 I carried a lot of righteousness, self-righteousness mm-hmm. that I've had to let go of over the years. And I still pick it up from time to time. And I realize when I do that, it shuts down a conversation sure. in a way. It becomes judgmental, sure. right? Sure. So let me, give you an ex- let me give you a personal example. I got a family member that's in jail right now. And this is someone that I'm close to that's been in and out of jail for a very long time. And I'm I'm listening to her talk and I'm and I'm hearing what we call new age language in her conversation. And she's a follower of Christ. And when she's going to church, she's really solid and she relapses. And so she's using this um, I'm gonna manifest my best life. Mm. I'm going to visualize these things. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And this is this becomes a cycle with this person. And 
she keeps wanting to visualize, manifest, think things into existence, speak things into existence. And all of these lofty new age ideas that Eckhart Tolle is congruent in, Oprah is congruent in, all of these things are overlapping with their sources and their origins. Um, and then the reality sets in mm-hmm. that you can speak things all you want. You yeah. can say things all you want. You can visualize, you can have a vision board, you can do all these things. And 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 again, in Eckhart Tolle's line of thinking, the conclusion of that is you are God. But the reality is that's not how the universe works. That's mm-hmm. not how this world works. That's not how our systems work. That's not how anything, you don't just think things and they happen. You you have to have a plan. You have to put in the work. You have to devise a, a structure on how to get there. And so if you're on the bottom, and I'm dealing with a lot of people that are down and out. They're, mm-hmm. they're in prison. They're poor. And what they're being told is just speak it. Mm-hmm. As if you're God. Yeah. Just think it. Mm-hmm. Just sow a seed. Mm-hmm. Sow a seed and it'll come back. On. And this is the stuff we're dealing with. In, and so there's this overlap that I think is counter human flourishing, that I think is hurtful to human flourishing, that I think is dangerous because people are being, and what happens is they run themselves into the ground because they're walking around thinking that, well, I spoke it, I read the secret, I believed it, I said it, I professed it, I had the vision board, I did my 22 year, you know, 2022 vision board, New Year's resolution thing. I I, I wanted the Tesla, the Tesla never came. I thought I was gonna get the Tesla. The universe was gonna reward me with the Tesla. And, mm. and I'm not trying to make a caricature of this. Mm. I'm saying that, this is what people say and believe, and yes. then they run into despair because it's not. That's not how things work. Well, you're talking about half the equation, essentially, right? You're saying because it is important to focus on what you want to. You know, I'm using the language you use there, manifest, right? It's not a word I would use, but by, by the way, I, I do use the word. I think manifest is a perfectly okay word to use. Yeah, I think it's, all, it's, it's guilty only by association, I not think by all, definition. I think all yeah. words are perfectly okay to use. I, I, have to, <laughs> I convince my daughter all the time, who's nine, that there's yeah. no such thing as bad words because she always tells me like that was a bad word, and I said, "Well, who told you it was a bad word?" Yeah. And um, and so yes, we, I, I agree with you. It's a fun, I'm just saying it's not a part of my sure, everyday sure. vernacular. But I, I I think where we are going to end up agreeing here is that even though you don't like uh, Eckhart Tolle's spirituality, mm-hmm. there's a lot of profundity in some of the things he has to say. And so we have a little segment on the podcast we call More About Less, where we read something as a jump-off point. Sometimes okay. it's an article or a tweet. So I brought in this article from scarymommy.com, my favorite dating site. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm going to get a G.K. Chesterton quote in before, we, before you quote Eckhart Tolle. Um, to, so we can keep our priorities in order. But, uh, wait, this is perfect because we're all pronouncing his name three different ways. Which I think is, it's Eckhart Tolle, right? I, 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 thought, I, I thought, thought it, it was Eckhart about Tolle. Tolle? Okay, I, then I I'm the know, odd though. man out. So I, say, I should know. verify no, this. I, but I say Tolle, so... <laughs> okay, we're, we're, so we're... we're yeah. <laughs> there, but thankfully, there is no right or wrong, so we're good. <laughs> the GK quote, and this captures kind of where I stand on like the, the beliefs, the opinions, the good, bad. He says, the purpose of an open mind is that of an open mouth, and it is to chew up on something solid. An old philosophy professor of mine, Timothy McGrew, he used to always say, keep an active mind rather than a passive mind. And I tend to like that a little bit better than open or closed because I'm not open to everything and I'm not closed to everything, but I choose to be active about it all. I choose to think critically and creatively about it all. But at the end of the day, I want to close my mouth and my mind on something substantial and chew on it. Yeah, you don't want it to be porous. So let me get to this article here. I'm just going to read a few of them and maybe we can agree or we can disagree on them. I'd like that too. So this is a hundred plus Eckhart Tolle 
slash tole slash toll quotes that will seriously enlighten you, <laughs> which is a bit uh, bit hyperbolic there. I'm not going to read the whole article. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. But here are a few of the quotes. We'll start with the first one here. The past has no power over the present. Well, TK, you and I often say, you, you talk to me about this. You've never said it on the podcast, but how any of these little minimal maxims, these little profundities, these bromides that we toss about, they can be simultaneously true and radically untrue at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I believe that every statement, no matter how much you love it, no matter how logical it is, can be made to sound absolutely ridiculous if you easily interpret it in a certain way. One day we should do a test where I can prove this. You give me any statement and I can show you how someone can interpret that in a way that makes it sound ridiculous. Let's but do if, it right now. But, but a better test in front that you can you. take Come it on. home is just put it on Twitter and 20 <laughs> people will show you. <laughs> All right, so the past has no power over the present moment. Well, in everyday practical life, that's certainly not true Yeah, because we stay stuck in the past. Now, yeah. of course... The past exists only in the present moment it, because there is no past in that respect. And I'm sure that's what he means. So, right. That's where you have to get curious, right? What does he mean? Uh, because if I went up to Eckhart Tolle, I was like, well, that's stupid because I, I have a cousin who's still living in the past today. Is Eckhart Tolle going to go, oh, bro, you blew my mind. <laughs> I never thought about that. He'll probably say, yeah, I know people, too, who are in some meaningful sense stuck in the past. But let's go a little bit deeper. Ruslan, here's another one for you. Some changes look negative on the surface, but you will soon realize that space is being created in your life for something new to emerge. Well, it seems like a, a bit on the, uh, uh, a new take on that Chinese farmer parable in a way. You yeah. Know, so, sometimes yeah. The, the worst things that happen to us, the worst suffering sure. ends up being the thing we're most grateful for. Yeah. That's, that's, I like that quote. It's a good quote. Yeah. So, no discipline seems, uh, uh, fruit, uh, enjoyable in the moment, but then you, it leads to a uh, harvest as the New Testament, Old Testament. I think that's in, um, I think that's in Proverbs. Yeah. So yeah, that's, he's copying the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's jump around here. So uh, let's see. Ooh, sometimes letting things go is an act of far greater power than defending or hanging on. Well, as the minimalist, it's pretty Am I the only one that thinks these are just like all super fake deep quotes? Like, the skin is the skin until the skin leaves its body and then it is no longer one with the skin. Like, <laughs> well, so it, I'll, I'll play Angel's advocate with that. Well, hold on real quick. <laughs> we call those faux fundities where someone's... Faux fundities. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to use that. It sounds profound at first and then you listen again and you're like, whoa, wait, wait, you just... That doesn't make any sense. Uh, my daughter makes these up all the time. She has a great Twitter account. We should, it's not her account, but we just like tweet the craziest shit that she says. And uh, yeah, and, and she's full of, of faux fundities. She looked at me uh, earlier this year and she goes, is the 4th of July on the 4th of July this year? <laughs> <laughs> so, Angel's Advocate. First, a faux fundity is something that actually has no meaning. You're yes. pretending to be saying something that has no meaning. That's not the the concern or criticism here. And I hear this comes up a lot, which is why I want to play Angel's Advocate with it. The concern here is like, okay, I get what the brother's saying, but does it even need to be said? Right. It's like so basic and so obvious. I get that. But I also work with elementary school students and high school students. And one of the things they have taught me and they continue to teach me is that obviousness is relative mm. to the hearer, right? Because... When, when we listen to something and we go, okay, does that even need to be said? 
we're bringing a whole lot of life experience and a whole lot of accumulated wisdom into the moment. And so when someone says, hey, man, sometimes working hard is a good thing, it sounds laughably obvious. But believe it or not, just like there are people every year who are born who need to be taught how to pronounce the words of the alphabet, there are thousands of people out there, millions of people who will hear that for the first time today. And they'll go, wow, that's really profound. And some people will hear it just because it came from you or just because it came from their brother. And so we can never say the obvious truths too much because as angry as someone will get on Twitter for you daring to say something that they already knew, God forbid, there are always people out there who don't know it and who need to hear it from you. So I am a defender of stating obvious truths to every generation because there are people born every day for whom those truths aren't obvious. I, I if love- it's true, Say it. I love that. Let me just let me just add something to this. And this is this may be controversial and, yeah, and go for it. you're you guys may not like me for this, but I think the deeper issue, in my opinion, is that there's this spectrum between postmodernism, where there is no objective reality and everything is your truth versus my truth and your reality. And then there's the other end of the spectrum of like radical fundamentalism from a religious mindset. And I think I would say Jesus and the scriptures are going to lean more towards, hey, there's objective reality, there's absolute truth, there's morals, there's right and wrong. And I think the issue with someone like like an Eckhart Tolle is that he's taking ancient truths that we've known. I, like you said the thing, and I was like, oh yeah, that, that's a proverb, right? And and it's being repackaged to a postmodern world where people don't want objective prescriptions. They don't want objective realities. They don't want to be told what is right and wrong. They want to live their truth in their reality. And I think that to me is the deeper underlying issue of why he's even so popular, of how Kendrick goes from, I'm baptized, I'm going to church, I'm trying to marry my my, uh, kid's mother to faux realities. What did you call them? Uh, faux fundities. Faux fundities. Uh, I'm going to kind of weasel my way out of whatever I don't really feel like doing in the moment because it's not conducive to how I feel about my reality. And so again, I don't mean to get super controversial, but this super duper postmodern, you are your truth, whatever you feel is real, flesh that out to its logical conclusion and some of the stuff that's happening in society right now. And there's some wonky stuff happening mm-hmm. based on this Whatever you, whatever floats your boat, bro. Just do you and your truth. And so I think that's the the the, the deeper issue with the new ageism and why why is Eckhart Tolle all of a sudden an authority? Oh, it's because people really don't want to deal with some of the objective ancient truths we've had all along. In my opinion, I'm gonna let you have the last word on that. I, mm. I like that we can have these conversations and we can disagree in ways that's still loving. And so uh, I want to end this segment. Before we get to our other segments, let's end with a song from Ruslan. This happens to be his most popular song. I think you'll enjoy it. It's called Friends by Ruslan and Paul Russell. Let's give him a round of applause, y'all. We'll be right back, y'all. Enjoy Friends from the album Via Text. Cheap advice, OC on the cheapest flight. 
Lately I've been on the move, trying to get to something But I told her I've been running just to see the sights See the lights, and they're not my type So we chill with brother if it's ice all white But it's not, am I living life in a box? Tell if it's a crisis or not I hate coming off too normal But I can use a wife and a dog and a job And a white fence off where the white kids walk Well, have I been lost? Don't know where the days went Spent a lot of nights in a blur And I bet I spent a few too many trying to make it And I, I haven't yet, yeah We had to bet I'm only here, yeah You know If you don't like this music, then don't be listening to it You know, I'm just a dude that you know Or something similar If you don't keep it real, can you go somewhere but here? Cause you know We're only losing control just for a minute, oh If you don't like this music, then don't be listening to it You know, I'm just a dude that you know Or something similar If you don't keep it real, can you go somewhere but here? Cause you know, we're only losing control just for a minute, oh If you lose such a Jesus, there I pledge my allegiance. My God really do I stumbled in the greatness. Only logical conclusion is I fumble with the fakeness. But rumble, young man, rumble. Anything that doesn't kill you makes you stronger or more humble. If God ain't the heart, what's any of it? Never been afraid to holler out, my God's the greatest. Ooh. Ain't gotta make sense, man, I used to make tense. If my life is a vacation, what am I chasing? You see friends come and go, but family is forever, especially in your lows. Not just blood. Ain't trying to keep up with the Joneses, cause the clones may end up becoming homeless. I ain't stuck. And my actions, they can show. And if they don't, then God forgive me for my woes. I need love, I need God, I need you, I need us, but if you don't like this music, then don't be listening to it, you know, I'm just a dude that you know, or something similar, if you don't keep it real, can you go somewhere but here, cause you know, we're only losing control, uh, uh, I say, if you don't like this music, you don't be listening to it, you know, I'm just a dude that you know, or something similar. If you don't keep it real, can you go somewhere but here? Cause you know we're only losing control just for a minute. Oh. If you don't like this music, then don't be listening to it. You know I'm just a dude that you know or something similar. If you don't keep it real, can you go somewhere but here? Cause you know we're only losing control just for a minute. Oh. Welcome back to the Minimalists Private Podcast. That was friends from Ruslan and Paul Russell. Big thanks to Ruslan for joining us today. We'll put a link to his YouTube channel in the show notes. But we have some segments to get to, TK Coleman. Before we do, let's check in with the Patreon live stream. Every Tuesday at 10 a.m., we do a Patreon live stream. If you get the video version of the podcast, you'll have access to that as well. Alabama, what do you got for us? We have a question from Midwest by Mountains. How do I ask my husband if he can accept me for who I am? 
We have been married for nearly 11 years and have two young kids, but it feels like he's trying to squeeze me into a box that I don't fit in. PK, we often accept someone for who we wish they were. Hmm. Expound, man. Well, we create this idealized version of someone. I'd really like TK if he was a soccer fan. I'd really like TK if he enjoyed romantic comedies. I'd really like TK if he drove a Corvette. Or when, when he agrees with me, when he laughs at my jokes. Yes. And so, yeah, I'll give you my acceptance as soon as, ellipsis. And of course... Mm. As soon as you've achieved those things, what do I do? I, I pile on more requirements after that. And so it always becomes a new horizon, acceptance. And I used to do this all the time. And I still catch myself doing it from time to time. Now, let's be clear. Sometimes you don't want to accept ill behavior, right? Someone's treating you poorly. You don't have to accept that, right? You can accept them for who they are, but still love them from a distance, a safe distance if they are treating you poorly. And yet, often that acceptance that we're talking about is manipulation. If I could just mold you into the mm. acceptable version. Because right now, who you are, TK, it's unacceptable to me. What does that say about our relationship? Yeah, that's so good, man. And sometimes, even when we start off on a good foot, we might evolve in unpredictable directions. And where an instinct to control didn't appear to be present in the beginning, it emerges in response to these surprises. You know, we seem to get along so well for the first few years. But now you're interested in something that makes me a little uncomfortable. Now you're into stuff that feels a little weird to me. And I feel a need to control it in order to conserve what we used to have. You know, one thing I'll say to this question, is that anytime you're trying to ask someone something about the way they're reacting to you, it's much easier for them to answer a question like, what is your problem with X? As opposed to a question like, what is your problem? Mm. One of them is very abstract and difficult to wrap one's mind around. The other is very particular and it allows them to focus their attention on something specific. So when I think about you saying, how do I ask my husband to accept me for the person I am? That's very broad. The person you are, not even you could define that because that's an inexhaustible list, right? Who you are, you're, you're probably still getting to know some things about that. There might be aspects of yourself that you don't even accept yet and you're learning how to love. And there are probably aspects of him that are easy to take for granted in moments when he's being disagreeable or judgmental. There are probably aspects of you that he does accept and that are not creating controversy in the relationship. What I would encourage is that you take it out of the abstract and don't ask a question like, when are you going to accept me for the person I am? That might just lead to him being defensive. Like, well, what do you mean? I accept this about you. I accept this about you. And that doesn't get you what you want. But one thing at a time, focus on something that he's having a judgmental reaction to. Focus on one area where he might not be honoring your freedom and say, hey, What's your problem with X? Can we get specific there? So what are some things quite often that you see in relationships where it's difficult for us to accept that about the other person? Well, maybe someone wants to opt out of activities that we really enjoy. I enjoy running and maybe I want you to run with me. 
And that's always been a part of my dream as a couple, that I would be with someone that goes running with me. And maybe you like exercise, but you like to do that by yourself. Uh Uh-oh. That conflicts with the fantasy that I had, right? Or maybe there are friends I have and you don't like those friends. And maybe you don't respect the fact that I hang out with them. And every time that I do, you harass me or give me a hard time. And by the way, this is a commonly overlooked way that we can restrict people or manipulate them. It's not just by putting our foot down and saying, I'm going to forcibly prevent you from doing X. It can also mean I'm going to harass you or roll my eyes or mumble under my breath every time you do something so that I kind of make you feel bad about it. A lot of different examples like that, but ultimately it's, it's about making people feel the weight of our disapproval when they do something that makes us uncomfortable or that conflicts with our fantasy for how the relationship should be. And I think in those moments, don't rely on memory, by the way. Memory will not serve you well when you're trying to have arguments about what he or she said. How many times have you been like, oh, I wish we had a video camera. You said this and I swear you said it. I didn't. I said the complete opposite of what you said I'm saying. Don't like me and Ryan. (laughs) 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 The funny thing is, quite often we actually have the conversations recorded and my petty self used to go back and show him. (laughs) Oh, my stars. (laughs) Which is even worse, right? Yeah. Because if you're wrong, it's bad to go back and look at the record, but it's even worse if you're right. Because if you're right, now the person is going to really hate you. There's nothing worse than being right and going through a whole lot of work to prove it. Now they're really not going to listen to you. <laughs> yeah, the, the only way it probably would have been conducive is if I would have done the opposite thing. If I would have went and found every time that I was wrong yeah. and showed him and said, hey, man, look, not only was I wrong, but I have the proof that I was wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let me show you how wrong I was. Yeah. And in a way, that's what we were talking about with, with Ruslan earlier is, hey, man, I... I don't believe in like some universal right or wrong, but in the situation, I was right or I was wrong, or we can disagree about these things. But I want to wrap up or put a bow on this question because I think there's a more profound way to look at it even. Because the question is what? How do I get my husband to accept me? What you're really asking there is how do I get my husband to love me? Because to love someone is to see them for who they are without trying to change them. What's another way to say that? To love someone is to accept them for who they are, warts and all. Not accepting some future version of them, not accepting some idealized version of them, but actually accepting them right now, in the present moment, how they are, with their flaws, with their quirks, with their idiosyncrasies, with everything whom they are. That's what it means to love someone. It doesn't mean you don't Mm. want something different for them. You can want something different and still accept all of them. It's possible to dislike something about someone and still love the entire person. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you're going to have conversations, keep them specific and not abstract and address something that's a problem to you in the moment. Alabama, my recommendation. Let's check in with the chat one more time here. What do you got for us? We have another question from Selena. She says, I tense up when I hear locker room talk in our office from managers and coworkers at work. How can I learn to let these things roll off my back or know when to speak up? Oh, man, you couldn't work at the minimalists. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. I hear Emma's in the chat right now as well. She could attest to this. Malabama could certainly attest to it. 
Uh, Jess can attest to this as well. Jess is actually the purveyor of most of the locker room talk at The Minimalists. <laughs> and so what do we mean when we say locker room talk? Because I think different people mean different things by this. I want to play Angel's Advocate here and, and dodge it, not duck it, but dodge that by saying the definition of locker room talk doesn't matter as much as the fact that you are cringing. If you are hearing any kind of talk in the workplace that makes you cringe, does it really matter if you can win a debate on that being locker room talk? We can call it soccer room talk. We can call it church talk. We can call it loving talk. Doesn't matter what label we put on it. The fact is, it makes you cringe. And every day when you go to work, you're putting up with these kind of conversations that make you feel like, I don't want to be here. I'm very uncomfortable right now. Someone's ability to define their way out of the problem doesn't change the fact that it makes you cringe. What do we do when we are in a space where we're having conversations or conversations are being had around us and they make us cringe? I think just as someone has the right to say what they want to say, you have the right to signal in your own way that you are not pleased. Yes. I think that's an important right that has to be honored, that has to be affirmed. It doesn't mean you're always going to experience the resolution how and when you want to experience, but I think it's worth always making it clear if something is going on around you in the workplace mm. that you don't think is appropriate. Yeah, but then of course, appropriate is perspectival, right? I mean, th there are some people who think, I, I don't think it's appropriate for black and white people to be together. Okay, you can state that opinion if you want. It's crazy. And yet, you might not think it's appropriate. But so, if that person is my mom or my wife, <laughs> it, it becomes appropriate to, it becomes useful to have a conversation around what we're going to do about it. Because there are some people who have ideas about appropriateness and I can ignore them because I'm not in a relationship with them, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the guy standing on the corner right now might think it's inappropriate for a black guy and a white guy to be having a conversation together. Okay, mm -hmm. that's fine. I don't have to consider his idea of what's appropriate. But if you and I have an idea like that, then we got to talk about it, man. We got to figure out what's going to work for us. Are we going to continue mm -hmm. working together? If we are, what's the best way to work together to preserve the relationship that you and I have voluntarily chosen to be in? And so in a workspace, there are rules that are established by the people in that workspace to protect the relationship that everyone has agreed to have. So I don't think we can just sort of, I don't think we can dismiss those type types of concerns based on the subjectivity of people's feelings about what's appropriate. I'd like to bring Malabama into this conversation as the woman on the podcast. <laughs> and what I'll say is, you know, she tolerates a lot of locker room talk, but I wouldn't say tolerates, but participates in it. Yes. And and I think there's a difference there. So me personally, I tell you the, the line that I've drawn, if I'm not willing to say something on a private podcast, I'm not also going to say it off mic with other people. So there are some things that we're not going to talk about on the public version of the podcast for various reasons. Mm -hmm. We can go into that. But at least with our Patreon subscribers mm -hmm. who give us the sort of wiggle room to mess up, to think extemporaneously. In Alabama, she'll hear a story and thankfully, you know, we've 
we've known her long enough. She'll hear something that Ryan and I are talking about or whatever. Ryan makes a, a joke about foreskin or something. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden, she's cackling. I am. <laughs> and in a way, you sort of ease into those. Now, unfortunately, she could have a completely different view of that. She could say, well, I don't think that is appropriate or acceptable. Yeah. And that would mean one of two things. I'm going to have to change the way that I speak. And I'm not willing to do that on the podcast, right? I'd be willing to do it off the podcast, but you're not going to censor me on the podcast. But even outside of the podcast, I get really worried about us always measuring what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate. Mm -hmm. So, Mallory, you navigate that really well. It, it, it's almost like an art in a way. So, <laughs> so tell me about, I mean, we obviously say some things that are uncomfortable, but I think quite often it's the things that are uncomfortable that we have the most fun with, too. Oh, most certainly. I love being challenged by a lot of the things that you guys say, especially the kind of humor you guys approach. That was something I mentioned in my interview that I valued as a core value is a good, good sense of humor with everybody. Because I also have the humor of a 13-year-old boy, much like you guys do, which yeah. is a lot of the jokes we do get to enjoy. I have a different tolerance for a lot of those things. But for me personally, if there's something that I do not find funny, I'll voice that and say, hey, that's not cool, man. Like, yeah. uh, let's go to something else. Mm -hmm. But for you guys, it it just happened to work out that I've not been um, uncomfortable enough to go, ooh, I need to take a step back. Yeah. I'm able to acknowledge that they are jokes. Yeah. No one is here to attack anybody else. It is all made in jest. And I just kind of roll with that. Yeah. There have been a few times where someone on the team, and they may not be here right now, but they've said something where I'm like, oh, hey, maybe outside the room, mm -hmm. you know, because there's a particular temperature in the room and you're able to check it. Yes. And that's when often the, the, off-the-cuff jokes work is when they're just over the line to the point where they expand the boundaries. They're pushing the line. Mm -hmm. But if it's so far, I, I think of basketball versus soccer in a way. Like I was so fascinated when uh, Bex and I, we started to go watch LAFC when we moved to Los Angeles uh, five plus years ago. And I was so like thrown off because soccer players can run out of bounds and still kick the ball as long as the ball doesn't go out of bounds. Mm. Mm. And it's the opposite of basketball because someone's standing out, out of bounds, they're dribbling the ball, they're just out, right? Right. Yeah. And what I realized is like, oh no, this is much more like soccer for us. We can go a little bit out of bounds. Yeah. But as long as we're keeping the ball in bounds, mm. we can expand our boundaries a little bit. Mm. Well said. Yeah. I think for these types of discussions, it's also important to make a distinction between relationship concerns and concerns about a broader cultural war that we perceive ourselves to be a part of. So for instance, oh. I'm in a relationship with a person and that person says, I'm offended by what you said to me. Okay? In the context of this relationship, I love this person. I love our dynamic together. And I might be willing to adjust my behavior to accommodate what is offensive to them, even if I don't think it's objectively wrong. Mm. Yes. However, there's this broader cultural war that is perceived where 
you know, you, you've got different factions, different political parties, different groups saying, hey, we define this as the thing that's offensive right now. And you've got other groups resisting that. And it can be easy to project those concerns onto relationships and, and, and get to a point where you're saying, hey, I'm not going to listen to anything that members of my family tell me are offensive because I don't want to give any points to that political group over there that's talking about offensiveness right now. Mm. I'm not going to accommodate someone in my workspace that's uncomfortable by things that are happening because, you know, I don't want those liberals or I don't want those conservatives thinking that they can manipulate me and tell me what I should say. Yeah. And I think you have to keep those things separate, right? Because everything isn't about scoring points or losing points, you know, with and to different political parties. Sometimes it's just about this relationship and it's like, hey, but do you care? Like, yeah, what you're doing or what you're saying isn't objectively wrong or isn't immoral, doesn't deserve you to be thrown in jail, but you like this person, right? Like, can you find another word to describe that? If mm. you can, I'm not saying you should, but for me, if I can just find another way to express myself and I can keep this person that I'm happy to have around happy, you know, I can go for that. I'm not worried about what the liberals and conservatives have to say about that. That's a different kind of war. Yes. And if it ever gets becomes too stifling, where they start policing everything you're saying, where you know, you've given an inch and now they feel compelled to now control you, that's a different story. Yeah. And I think the essence of the question, who asked the question? Selena. Selena, I think the essence of your question is there are some things that are being said at your job that are making you uncomfortable. And it is okay to say, hey, this makes me uncomfortable. It's also okay to realize that it may not be them that is making you uncomfortable. It's the story you're telling yourself about that feeling that you're experiencing. And so both things can be true. You are making yourself uncomfortable, but also the things that are being said around you are triggering that discomfort that exists inside you. Any comments from the live stream? We did have a really neat comment from Jessica she said, I buy things I see characters in TV shows using. Then I get bored and throw them away. And I end up back in the same loop when I watch a new show. Advertisements aren't just in commercials anymore. Now it's in TV shows and movies. What you're talking about is product placement. In fact, that brings me to one of our Simple Living segments here. Danny, we're going to move around a little bit because I want to get to our Mass It or Trash It segment in a moment. But we do this other segment called Checkout Line Wisdom, where we, of course, what's the place that we impulse purchase the most? Well, now it's online because <laughs> it's right there. It's in your Instagram feed. It's recommended by Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. We impulse purchase online. But in the real world, when we're at the grocery store, we're at the department store, we're at some store, we're at the checkout line, there are always those things that are right there in front of us to entice us, including magazines and newspapers that are meant to make us feel something. So Danny's going to bring me the iPad that we have here. And this is this week's checkout line wisdom. I was actually at the car wash this week and they had you know, a bunch of magazines and newspapers that you could purchase or read while you were waiting. And TK, this, I was looking for wisdom in the newspaper because it's the Wall Street Journal. We'll yeah. put a Jordan, by the way, if you are watching the video version of this episode, he'll put it right up here. If you're watching the live stream, I'll just hold it up briefly. There, um, you can see this is the 
front page of the Wall Street Journal. If you're just listening to the audio version, that's fine too. You'll be able to follow along. And I was absolutely appalled. Speaking of things that feel inappropriate to me, PK, I picked this up. Now, I want you to, I want to give you some context. Remember you and I and Kim Iverson and Jamie Kilstein all did an episode of the Minimalist Podcast about political clutter. Oh, yeah. Right before the election, the 2020, for, uh, 2020 election. And we talked about all of the, the news, the media clutter yeah. that was going on in our lives. And even before then, right before then, I stopped witnessing the news. I stopped picking up newspapers. I stopped seeking it out. Now, of course, it's inevitable. I'll be at an airport and I'm blasted by some headline on the little lower thirds that come trailing by. But then, as you'll see on the the video screen here, this front page of the Wall Street Journal, I, I haven't seen news in about two years. And so I picked this up. And it was just panic after panic after panic. And I would not have realized this two years ago. It just, just seemed like important news. And so I picked it up and I saw Zelensky removes. I don't know what a Zelensky is. Um, earnings season, slow start, cloud stock market outlook. Feds lean toward another 0.75 point increase. Earnings season slows. Musk's inner circle rocked by a feud. Afghanistan economy is crumbling. And it goes on and on and on. German pillows are oddly huge, many say. Reasons are squishy. Sorry, that one snuck up on me. <laughs> Which one of these does not belong? Yeah, right. <laughs> Actually, they all belong. That, that's the paradoxical thing. They all fit. And the top one is wildfires, record heat, beset European continent. Now, here's my question for you is, what does this have to do with me? Well, right. Well, and so the answer is obvious. What this has to do with me is it needs to aggregate my eyeballs onto their paper in order to sell me advertisements that I go buy products that I may or may not need to convince me that I need these. The, the main objective of the news is now the aggregation of an audience. And one might argue that any advertisement-driven medium, it's the reason we don't do ads on our YouTube channel or our podcast, etc., is because I don't want to play that game, right? right? Now, is there an ethical way to play the game or whatever? Okay, maybe. I simply don't want to play the game. And so I've opted out of the game. And now that I see this, it all feels like panic. And I feel like, oh, if we're going to start arresting people for inciting panic, can we just start with the Wall Street Journal? Oh, man, so good. You know, I, I, I talk a lot about this idea of you know, when people read articles like that or headlines like that, how much of that stuff can you actually do anything about? And even if you can, how much of that stuff will you actually do anything about? And a common question I get is, but, but shouldn't we treat it as good to be informed about some things that are happening globally? Yeah. I mean, even if we can't do something about it, shouldn't we at least be informed? And, and, I, and I had a best friend, Ryan, who said, oh, you know what? If you don't keep up with that, this is before... I walked away from it. Yeah. You're irresponsible. That's right. Because that was Irres what he yeah. had been told as well. Because you have a moral duty to be informed. 
And I'm actually all for being informed at a global scale. But my question is, why would we allow those 5, 10, 15, 20 events be our representation of the millions of things that happen around the world every day? And if you understand what drives the news cycle, you'll know that it's inconsistent with the economic incentives to report on certain kinds of events. Father shows up, takes care of his kids. That can't make the news. No, because it doesn't get your eyeballs. Doesn't get your eyeballs. How many things like that? How many good things? How many things that would inspire you to be more creative, inspire you to be a better parent, inspire you to make smarter decisions? Simply can't make the news because they're not the types of stories that sell. So it's good to be globally informed, but it's not good to allow a single entity or an advertisement-driven industry to define what it means to be informed for you. Mm. Another aspect about product placement is not only is there product placement, but there's behavior placement, lifestyle placement, agenda placement. You can advertise a lot more than just a tangible product, right? I can I can make a TV show where all of the cool people are the ones that buy stuff all the time or the ones that treat people a certain way or that have a certain lifestyle. And I can make all the losers and the nerds, the people who say no to things that are unhealthy, the people that establish certain boundaries, the people that manage their energy effectively. Merely by making one set of behavior patterns look cool and another look geeky or idiotic, I'm already selling you on a certain kind of lifestyle. We're moving beyond material clutter here. What you're talking about is news media clutter or information clutter, which one could argue is even more insidious because it drives the behavioral patterns. It's the reason that we're so worried about people mining our data. It's not that I care that someone has my email address. It's that they're taking the email address or they're taking the phone number, those are two small things. But what they're really doing is they're taking my habits. Where have my eyeballs been? And then they're using me to manipulate me by selling me other products, by selling me that t-shirt or those pants. Or you know, Bex and I the other day were talking about getting a mirror for our bedroom. Don't ask. And, and in doing that, her Instagram feed immediately was populated by various mirrors. And so as soon as we talked about it and maybe she searched it somewhere i have no idea but all of a sudden immediately she's bombarded with it and so they're funneling her into these different consumer purchases which brings me to our next segment it's called advertisements suck and of course you know if you're a listener a long-time listener of the minimalist we think that advertisements suck we don't think they're morally bad or wrong we just think they're gross kind of like throw up if someone were to puke on your shoe you'd be grossed out by that right. and advertisements often puke on my shoe danny <laughs> jordan's going to put the picture above my left shoulder here i'll hold it up if you're watching on the live stream here this is from a company called four drinkfour.com oh look at that four loco I don't know what that is. It's some sort of drink. Yep. And I will read it to you. It simply says, nice cans. And uh, I was showing this to my wife and she said, well, she has great tits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Mallory uh, seems to agree. I don't know. I didn't even notice. But um, I can tell you that there are two cans here. Um, and also two soft drinks. Um <laughs> Now, 
let's talk about how insidious this is because what advertisements often do is they relate to things that are utterly unrelated. I I still haven't seen it. Oh, you can't see it? No. It says, what about now this? available legally, there is a woman with large breasts over top of two cans that say four on them. Wait, I know, I, I know I'm crazy, but where's the... Uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> My okay. favorite is now available legally implies it was available illegally before. Here, here. Now I, you can I, see I, her I, better. I, I, Danny I, I, did not do a see. great job of yeah, getting this okay. picture on okay. the screen. I, I'll blame myself for yeah, that. Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. I got it. Okay. So, well, they actually took two things that are related, right? They've taken common slang to refer to breast, right? And they've taken something that is a reality, like two cans, and they say nice cans, right? They're juxtaposing something that is a can in formal language and something that's referred to as cans in informal language. I think what a lot of these advertising our advertisements do is, is they buy into the premise that all press is good press. Any conversation is a good conversation as long as it's about me. Uh, Kanye West has mastered that art, right? As long as I keep you talking about me, I don't care what you say as long as it's my name that's in your mouth, right? That's yeah. how people think. I think a lot of these types of advertisements are done not because they sell product, but because they're engineered to get a reaction. They, they want to make you mad. There, there was actually, um, there, there's a book, I think uh, they made a movie out of it called I Hope You Serve Beer in Hell. I hope they serve beer in hell. Mm. And um, uh, the guys behind it were talking about how when they had this this uh, this book or a movie, I don't remember which, they really wanted to get some marketing behind it. And and, and when they looked at the cost of all the traditional uh, mechanisms, you know, they just really couldn't afford to do much. So what they decided to do was they actually started, um, they, they brought, they bought like some inexpensive marketing, like like on the inside of buses, whatever. They got the cheapest thing they could get, but then they started to call the like the mayor or whatever and complain about the ads, <laughs> uh, saying that the ads were bigoted, and they deliberately made them so right so that they could like justify the complaint they wanted to make about themselves. Yeah. And in the process of doing that, they created this controversy that got everyone talking, and it was really good for their sales because people were like, "Oh, what's that all about?" So a lot of these ad- bad ads, so to speak. They're just ways to get us talking, man. Ways yeah. to make us feel angry. Like, I hate that. Because when you hate something and you talk about how much you hate it, that's just as profitable to the people that are making money off your attention as if you said you love it. In fact, it might be more profitable because we tend to write and argue a lot more about our negative experiences than we do the things that we love. That's true. Yeah. The, the ad itself, I don't look at it as evil. I see it as manipulative. It's the same thing that the Wall Street Journal was doing earlier, trying to get our eyeballs onto it. In fact, in some ways, this is less manipulative because it's not, there's no pretense there. I heard David Foster Wallace say that Las Vegas is the least pretentious city in the world. I agree with him. Because you know what you're getting when you show up there. And at least with this ad, hey, I've, I know what I'm looking at. I can pretend I'm looking at the cans when I'm really looking at the cans. Yeah, Vegas, they're just like, hey, man, we want to do a better job at getting the money out of your pocket into ours than that other casino. What can we do to please you so you pay us more? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I ain't saying it's good.
<laughs> By the way, honest. if you have a, a sucky ad for us, just email podcast at theminimalists.com. We'd love to get your examples. Malabama will collect those and we will feature them on a future episode. It can be a sucky ad that was compelling to you. It could just be a really bad ad, whatever you think. Send it on over to podcast at theminimalists.com. You can also send us your checkout line wisdom. Let's say you're at the line at the grocery store and you see something like, oh, that actually has real wisdom in it. Here are five ways to live more intentionally. And you take a picture of it. Send it on over podcast at theminimalists.com. For our next segment, we call it Amass It or Trash It. You can send in your Amass It or Trash It items where people ask, should I hold on to this or should I let it go? And today's Ambassador Trash segment is one of my items. I happen to be wearing it. <laughs> it's my favorite t-shirt. And if you're watching the video version, you'll see there's a picture of me holding it in my, in my uh, bedroom. But uh, you can see it here, TK, me holding it up in the bedroom. But I'm also on screen here. I have a giant hole that sometimes people call uh, it a nipple hole. It's not. It's just a big hole in my that's shirt. That's why I said it was strategically placed because it's it looks <laughs> it's very close. close. To, yeah. <laughs> like that's what you want it to be. Easy do. access. No, I didn't want <laughs> no. the hole. It just showed up. Hulk yeah, Hogan, Hulk Hogan is ripping. Well, it's my favorite shirt, but it's only my favorite shirt, oddly, because all of my shirts are one of two brands. Uh, I This brand I have is called Save Khaki, and I've had this shirt for probably 10 years. And the other brand that I often wear is Los Angeles Apparel because they treat their workers fairly, and I, I like their shirts. And this one I've had for a really long time. And of course, I can get rid of it. And it's no different from my other shirts other than the fact that it has a hole in it. And so I'm not holding on to it because it has a hole in it. And it's also not truly my favorite shirt in any other sense where I'm clinging to it either. And so, TK, if you're me, or pa patrons, if you're in the live chat right now, let me know. what. It, maybe you can even vote on it. We can Ooh. put up a YouTube poll, Professor Sean. What should Josh do with his shirt? Should he amass it or trash it? What are your thoughts, TK? I think first, you should write a poem about it. <laughs> There's a hole in the middle of my shirt. Dear Eliza, dear Eliza. Symbolizing the transparency <laughs> of my heart. <laughs> my heart is open, baby. Yes! Can I, can I make an R&B song? Girl, you gotta let it go. <laughs> I know your shirt's got that hole. Uh, so we actually have this meme uh, accidentally Jordan was creating this image and we've been saying it for over a year now we, he does these minimal maxim images and so the he accidentally juxtaposed two images together and so it was like uh, are you going to let go of those things or whatever it was and the second image was like something about um the shirt that you wear, right? Mm. And when they were accidentally spliced together, it said, are you going to wear that shirt? And ever since then, like we've been asking that of each other, but now it's the most appropriate meme because it's like, I'll pull this out and I'll wear it just fine on any non-podcasting day. I just treat it like any other shirt. But on a podcasting day, generally, if I put it on, I'm like, uh-oh, I, I, I should wear some other shirt. So you will wear it though? I wear it every week, yeah. So I only why, have about 10 shirts. So. Why would you throw it away? What's the argument for it? Because clearly you've got reasons for keeping it. You actually use it a lot. Yeah. Why would you throw it away? Because I feel the pressure to throw it away. Oh. I feel as though it has become obsolete in a way. 
And we have a whole segment on here called Obsolete Objects. And I don't know whether or not it's obsolete. We'll get to that segment in a moment. My shirt is not the obsolete object yet. But I think part of it has to do with the pressure we feel because I'm totally fine with the shirt. I never even really much pay attention to the hole that's in it. How could it possibly be obsolete then? Mm. All right. Well, let us know in the comments, patrons. <laughs> you get to decide. I mean, ultimately, I will decide. But you can uh, you can give us your feedback. Speaking of obsolete objects, Danny, if you want to cue up this next one from Jennifer in Alabama, you want to read Jennifer's testimonial that we have about <laughs> her obsolete object. You'll see it here on the video version right above my left shoulder. Jennifer says, obsolete thing I still use on occasion and can easily replace with what I already own, my iPod. So, Professor Sean, you had some insights on this. The difference between an obsolete item and, what was it, a vintage item? Yeah, a vintage item. Apple's definition. Okay. Let's talk about that. Yeah, here. Let me ask Mallory to read this. All right. Malabama, can you read this definition from Apple? So, I think this is an important distinction to make because just because something is old doesn't necessarily mean, as TK was alluding to earlier, that it is obsolete. Products are considered obsolete when Apple stopped distributing them for sale more than seven years ago. <laughs> read, can That's you read can oh, you, the whole thing? Can you add the next sentence just because I find it amusing <laughs> and Josh sure. might too? Monster branded Beats products are considered obsolete regardless of when they were purchased. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. great. <laughs> so there are some vintage items like my shirt that is not yet obsolete. And this iPod that you're looking at over my shoulder is just a stock image of an iPod. I got rid of an iPod a few years ago. I gave it to someone who needed one. And she was really, uh, she really wanted, she really liked my taste in music. Mm. Uh, and she was in Missoula. And I was like, I have this whole iPod that I don't really use anymore. And therefore, it's obsolete for me. But for her, she runs a massage studio. And so she really liked my music. So she was using it to play music, not just for her, but for her customers. So a thing that is obsolete for me hmm. may be value-adding and prominent in your life. This reminds me, there's a Twilight Zone episode called The Obsolete Man, starring the actor Burgess Meredith. And it's about this totalitarian regime that outlaws books and Burgess Meredith plays a librarian. And so Wordsworth, and they bring him before the court and they declare him obsolete. They say, you, sir, are obsolete. Mm. And he speaks back to the court and says, you cannot make me obsolete because I am here to remind you that ideas matter and that you can't erase the power of an idea with an edict. It's a very powerful episode, but it illustrates exactly what you just said. The status of something being obsolete can't be determined by law, can't be determined by legalism. It has to be determined by what matters to the individual. Something matters to you and you use it. It cannot be obsolete. Yeah, Jennifer. So thank you for your question. If you're still using it, it doesn't mean that that's a great reason to hold on to it either because there are a lot of things that we use that we could cease using and maybe our life would still be better without it. So you get to determine how much value does this add and does the mental clutter that it is creating, because obviously it, it created enough sort of mental clutter, psychological clutter that she wanted to ask the question. But is it so much psychological clutter that, uh, that it makes sense to let it go? And if so, wonderful. 
You can thank the thing. You can let go of the thing. And maybe someone else will get immense value from that thing. Mm. If you have an obsolete object, send us an email, podcast at theminimalists.com. Another segment for you today, Photo Friday Home Tour number four. It's the same picture that you saw earlier of me with my shirt. And after Bex took this picture for me to post, you actually get to see a little insight in into my bedroom here. I call this Objects A. So uh, it's a play on Object A, which our friend Peter Rollins, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago, he eloquently describes Object A. It's a, it's, I believe it's from Lacan. And Lacan says, Object A is the thing you're willing to burn everything else down for in order to get. So for Nicodemus, it might be the Tesla that he really wants. <laughs> we all have this Object A, the, the thing that we think is going to complete us or make us whole, ultimately fulfill us, give us perpetual bliss. And of course, as soon as we get it, there becomes a new object, a a new Mm. object of our desire. And also, the thing that was the object of our desire, and on a long enough timeline, it often becomes obsolete. The object Mm. of our desire, a year from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, becomes the object of our discontent. Much like the iPod. So pay no attention to the hole in my shirt right now. That's not what we're talking about. But behind me, you'll see a bunch of different objects on the shelves there. The very bottom is a hat box that was my mom. It's the only, it was my mom's hat box. It's full of photos and it's the only sentimental item of hers that I still have. The only thing that I kept around. And what's fascinating about that is it's not necessarily my aesthetic. So it adds a, a bit of wabi sabi to our home because. It's not as pristine as maybe my aesthetic would be. It's not as brutalist as my aesthetic would be. And it adds this little element of my mom there. And also it's full of pictures. And what's, what's beautiful about that is I accidentally created this boundary because she had more pictures than that, but I couldn't fit them all. I, I guess I could have gotten more hat boxes or whatever because mm. she had several. But would my life be 10 times better if I had 10 times the hat boxes? Mm -hmm. Maybe the opposite would be true. They'd actually start getting in the way. And then we have all these other beautiful objects. Actually, I don't plan on keeping all these beautiful objects on these shelves. We have several other shelves in the house that we will have these objects that we have have acquired. I was almost said collected, but we don't collect things. But we acquired them over the course of our relationship together. And that's a beautiful piece of art there. You'll see at the the top there, that's a, a vase that we have. I'll actually probably put that on a different shelf or the the little globe that is there that's or a sphere, I should say, that, that is there. You see a few candles and a few other vases and you have this bowl. It's celadon green. That bowl is right next to that picture, picture frame. That's the only frame picture I have in the entire house of the three of us, me, my wife, and Ella, the three of us. We have one picture of the three of us in our house. That's our boundary. We have one. I'm going to tell you about another boundary here in a moment. In fact, I'll allude toward it for a future home tour that we're going to do. But you'll see here that that vase that I have, that was our publisher for Love People Use Things. They're called, their name is Celadon. And for each, each artist, each author, they handcraft some sort of object in Celadon green. And it's beautiful. I often keep like change or different things in that vase. But even if I didn't use it, it adds an aesthetic beauty to the space as well. And so, well, we have all of these different objects, and I do think they add an aesthetic quality to the space. 
I also want to recognize my life would be completely fine without them. Yes, they enhance or amplify my life, but these don't make me who I am. Angel's advocate. (laughs) I think it is true that your life would be fine without them. And it is also true that there is more to life than being fine. Hmm. There are many things that we can live without, but life is not a contest where we're here to prove how much we can live without. It's about creating as much space as possible for the things that energize us and that remind us of whatever it is that needs to be reinforced. So I think about the role of iconography, which is completely unnecessary in terms of my personal health, my personal happiness. But they are images that I have in my home because they lift up my thoughts towards transcendence and they remind me in the day-to-day of life that there is more to life, there's more to what I'm here to do than to just pay the bills, than to just, you know, keep the machine churning. And can I technically make it without those things? I technically can, but I don't need to prove that I technically can. I can know for myself that I can live without it, but I can have those permission slips because those permission slips make it easier for me to facilitate certain states of consciousness. And so that vase they made for you, Mm. it looks beautiful. It doesn't look ugly. I didn't hear you say it gets in the way. You use it. I heard you say in an alternate universe where I didn't use it, you know, but in this universe, you use it and it looks good. And when you look at it, it reminds you of something that's important. The question is not, can I still be me without those things? But by having those things present, do they allow me to enjoy who I am and what my life is about with greater fullness? That's what aesthetics really are about. Because you own a thing is not a good reason to keep it. Because you use a thing that is also not a great reason to keep it. But what you're saying is the opposite is also true. I may not use a thing in a utilitarian sense, but it has some other use. Its use is adding an aesthetic beauty that enhances my life. And certainly any of these objects you're seeing here in this photo, they enhance my life in some way. We had Bobby from Queer Eye on the podcast talking about interior design uh, maybe a couple of years ago. And it was such a, a great episode. One thing that he talked about on that episode was quarterly, just going through and taking the objects you already have and just sort of moving them around. And that's something Mm. I've done ever since. If you want to give it new life, because over time, these objects that remind you of transcendence, if they stay in the same area infinitely, they often lose their power to remind us of transcendence, right? And so simply moving them around, if I have three different shelves, you know, built-in shelves in my house, and I just take, oh, you know what? That Celadon uh, vase that I have, or it's actually mm. not a vase, it's a bowl, Celadon bowl that I have, if I put it on another shelf, now all of a sudden, it's new. I'm no longer taking it for granted. It's not a new thing, yeah. but its position is new, and that reminder returns. If we do that regularly, whether it's monthly, quarterly, yearly, all of a sudden, we're, we're not buying new things, we're not acquiring new things. We're simply moving the thing as a reminder of that transcendence. I just experienced this with my books, by the way. I have two boxes of books at home that I'm going to sell and and donate the rest because with our move and working with a smaller space, 
I've had to take the books out of the box and I've had to put them in different places than where they were in my older place. And there's something about just having the book in your hand, looking at it, remembering it, and putting it on the shelf versus it just being there for months and months and you walk past it and it represents an aspiration to read someday. Having to take it, look at it, put it on the shelf makes you go, wait, hold on. The aspiration to read this book comes from a stage where I had questions that I'm not even asking anymore. It comes from a stage where I was doing a certain kind of professional work and I wanted to engage the thinking of other people around this work to see if I could borrow some techniques that might be useful to me, but I no longer do that kind of work and I'm no longer even interested in doing that kind of work. Oh, it's very pretty though. Mm. I did spend a decent amount of money on it though. There was a time where I was super excited about having this book and it was like one of the best in my collection, but it doesn't even represent my current curiosities. Okay, I can be fine without this. And then you put it in that box. And the more you do that, the easier it gets to do that. The first time you do it, though, it feels kind of dramatic. Like, wait a minute, I'm hurting myself, you know? I'm not being true to myself. But you're being true to yourself. You're being true to more than just your past self. You're being true to your evolving self. Every Friday, we send out a picture of one of these Photo Friday home tours. If you get the video version of the podcast, you'll just get it in your email box every Friday. So... You probably saw this in your email box last Friday or a couple couple Fridays ago. You can check those out just uh, over at patreon.com slash The Minimalists. All right, before we get to our added value segment this week, let's say big thanks for Ryan interrupting his vacation to call in today. And also, thanks to Ruslan for joining us today. You can check out his YouTube channel. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Real quick, for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists. If you enjoy our podcast and you want some other questions answered about relationships or parenting or sex or wellness, my wife Bex has a podcast, which I co-host with her. It's called How to Love. You can find it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's called How to Love. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. For our added value this week, since we argued quite a bit on the private podcast with Ruslan, and it was the argument stemmed from Kendrick Lamar's new album, which is called Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. I thought I'd play my favorite song from that album. This is... Rich Spirit. And I'll, this is my favorite Kendrick album. And I really like Good Kid Mad City. I really like Damn. But there was something about this where there's this man who is clinging to his ego as it slips through his hands. And the holder, but the tighter he holds on to it, the more it seems to slip away. And I think you'll certainly see that in this song. He's becoming enlightened, but doing so, he's grasping to sort of to not be enlightened. And you're seeing the dichotomy of both. Enjoy Rich Spirit. That's our show for today, Simpletons. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Malabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, po- Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time.
Taking my baby to school, then I pray for Cause you bitches ain't never been cool Writing testament, painting pictures Put me in the Louvre, that's a definite Universal shift, I'm in the groove A celebrity do not mean integrity, you fool I'm a good man, shake your hand Firm grip, rule, 72 wins, lost 10 Balling with the flu, more than two M's For sure, but add another two Little man, man, the big man's the GT down and flipping the kickstand. Bitch, nigga, broke phone. Trying to keep the balance, I'm staying strong. Stop playing with me before I turn you to a song. Stop playing with me before I turn you to a song. Hey, bitch, I'm attractive. Can't fuck with you no more, I'm fasting. Bitch, I'm attractive. Can't fuck with you no more, I'm fasting. Morality can wait, feedback on low latency I'm glitching from the face, that's my thoughts grow sacredly I'm running out of space, ask when is she okay? Never mind a honey cake, why you lying on Benjamin? He turning in his grave, I be lying if I said I wouldn't get a shit away The aloof Buddha, I'm Christ with a shooter Praise to Muhammad, I might nigga lose ya AP, Michael Friedman, my friend's cooler Primary so the resale face stupid I would never love my life on a computer IG, I get you life for a chikabuya More power to ya Love him from a distance Why you always in the mirror more than the bitches And my cousin tried to sue me like he got the privilege But I didn't lose sleep cause I got the spirit Hey, bitch nigga, broke phone Trying to keep the balance, I'm staying strong Stop playing with me before I turn you to a song Stop playing with me before I turn you to a song Hey, bitch I'm attractive Can't fuck with you no more, I'm fasting Bitch I'm attractive Brother, we dress up the score. Give me that, brother. Spirit medium, my rap, brother. We headed there now. Are you strapped, brother? Hey, peacemaker, but I'm not naive, brother. Hey, gotta watch your homies and police, brother. Hey, cloud chasing, hell of a disease, brother. I'm fasting, four days out the week, brother. I pray to God that you realize the entourage is dead. I pray to God that you're not lagging when you off the meds. I pray to God she know them Cabo trips don't last forever. Bitch, you argue with her mama, go and get them kids. I pray to God you actually pray when somebody dies. Thoughts and prayers, way better off timelines. False claiming, not cute, I'm mortified. The new earth and high pursuit, 200 lives. Bitch, nigga, broke phone. Trying to keep the balance, I'm staying strong. Stop playing with me before I turn to a song. Stop playing with me before I turn you to a song. Hey, bitch, I'm attractive.